This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Happy Thursday to you today. And by the way, happy Popcorn Day. Time, time to grab your popcorn. You will need it because... Uh, I looked out the window and what did I see? Popcorn popping oh, on yeah. the apricot tree. The great spring popcorn popping on the apricot tree. Except it's not spring yet. No. A lot of snow stopping the popcorn from popping on the apricot tree. I didn't see tree. any snow out there. Oh, it's snowing. Hmm. Popcorn? Nope. No. Nope. Just water from heaven. Happy Happy Popcorn Day today! To uh, you're going to need your popcorn tonight because the inauguration begins. Ooh, Donald Trump yeah. on his way in his private plane to Washington D.C. to begin the party. I guess tonight is a concert at the Kennedy Center, and then unleash the hounds. We also sent Schick there, so he should be covering it tomorrow. Yeah, Schick. Um, uh, yeah, but I think he wanted us to. To toss to him later today. Well, he wa- I think he's looking to like do a two-day news, you know, cover. He wants to cover everything that's going on with you, the inauguration. You, hmm. is that you, is you that might what you wanna, heard? Is that what you heard? Because that's what I heard. Well, let's just toss that's what to Jerry him. Told me. Let's toss to him. See what he says. Okay. So let's do the news, and then we'll toss to Schick, uh, our great uh, roving reporter for Empty News, Schick Shumway. We'll get to him in a minute. Uh, we've got uh, also coming up, we'll be talking with uh, the author of the book, We Are Better Than This, How Government Should Spend Our Money. I mean, this is what creates a lot of problems is everybody has a different view of what government should be doing and how, you know, is government using our money appropriately or are they wasting it? We'll talk about that. All that fun ahead. Plus, more on uh, Obama and I'm sure Terry's got some interesting news out of Libya, maybe? No. Okay. Well, it's a really important story. She's dropping bombs. Just happened overnight. I know. They've been dropping bombs. Isn't it crazy? Two, a day and a half before President Obama's out of here, and boom, little bomb droppage. Got to do it. Got to clear out ISIS. I think we do it every day. We, we just don't really report on it really as much. We report on it. But, I mean, they're B-52s, so, I mean, we had to send them from... A long distance. So, yeah, yeah there's a lot of plotting and planning. Yeah. And it's not just like we're doing like no. a little flight over. So, no, yeah, it was, a, it was a big deal. But, I mean. And maybe he's just cleaning the table. I don't know Donald. what they're bombing anymore. If you've seen the pictures, there's not much left. Yeah. So, I'm. <laughs> That's. Yeah. So, I. Bombing. And then you get the reports from the ground where, you know, they weren't really what we thought they were and misinformation all around from all sources. So, yeah, we're bombing stuff on the other side of the planet again. Pay attention, pay attention, because this eventually in a day will be in the hands of Donald Trump. Yes. About a a day from right now. But from what he said before, he may just continue. Oh, yeah. Well, he's got great generals. They'll handle it. Yeah. Well, he's not starting until Monday. Yeah, he'll be Monday. That's true, that's true. I think he told Obama, you know, if you want to stay the weekend, that's fine. Fine with me. Hey, you know what? I got, I'm not even, I want to go back to New York, back to my Trump Tower. Good stuff. Let's get to the headlines, Terry. What's going on around the rest of the country? The FBI and five other law enforcement agencies have reportedly been working together for months on an investigation into whether the Russian government covertly sent money to aid President-elect Donald Trump's campaign. One of the alleged 
Allegations involved whether a system of routinely paying thousands of Russian-American pensioners may have been used to pay some email hackers in the U.S. or to supply money to intermediaries who would then pay the hackers, the two sources said. So kind of a convoluted uh, mm. funding issue there. According to the sources who spoke in the, with uh, the uh, the newspaper here, the FBI, CIA, National Security Agency, Justice Department, Treasury Department's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, didn't know there was one of those, but wow. there is, and representatives of the Director of National Intelligence are all involved in the extensive probe. The investigation started long before that dossier it was released last week. This, so this is, this, they've been on this for a while. Yes. So we'll see what happens. Commerce Secretary nominee Wilbur Ross seemed to side with President-elect Donald Trump when it come to fe- comes to federal government spending on infrastructure projects. Republicans have so far been lukewarm about Trump's proposal to invest a trillion dollars in the country's bridges, highways, and airports. They want to fund it. Pri- or they want to have private funds, not public funds, ah. to pay for the infrastructure. Sure. Not sure how you find that. But. In fact, our guest will be talking about private versus public. Right. Oklahoma Attorney General Scott Pruitt, who is President-elect Donald Trump's nominee for uh, the EPA position, said in his confirmation hearing that his department would adhere to the rule of law and that he would focus on restoring the public's trust in the federal government. He said he intends to use the EPA to regulate through cooperative federalism. Hmm. The idea that a lot of people feel the EPA has a heavy hand. And stop business, stopped innovation, yeah. and that he wants to work with the public, not against the public. That was kind of his message. Good, okay. So we'll see how that works. U.S. State, uh, U.S. Senate Armed Services Committee voted overwhelmingly on Wednesday to recommend President-elect Donald Trump's pick for Secretary of Defense, retired Marine General James Mattis. The committee voted 26 to 1 wow. to back Mattis. Mad Dog the, Mattis. He received the full... Uh, Senate, or what he, when it is received by the full Senate from Trump after he's sworn in as president, so he will be nominated. Holy cow! So twenty six to one. So many many Democrats jumped on board yes. to support Mattis. And when you listen to what he said, it was reasonable. He's yeah. He, well, and know, he's yeah. They basically, love him. he said these guys are bad. These guys are good, and everyone agreed. Yeah. There was one guy that didn't, and his name has not been released. <laughs> not available at the yeah. time. We want him to live. And finally, there are nearly 60 seniors at Cincinnati's DePaul Cristo Rey High School. And every single one has received at least one acceptance letter from a college. Wow. And the, the principal says, it makes me feel proud. We work hard with these students. We welcome them as freshmen with a promise that all students will graduate from high school and college and we will do it together. On Tuesday, the school held a celebration for the college-bound seniors who have also earned $3.8 million in merit-based scholarship money. Wow. Cool. This, this is the third straight year that that high school has had 100% college acceptance. Where is the school? Cincinnati. Wow. Yeah. That's fantastic. Why? Well, that seems like a model. We need to model that. There you go. I doubt we will. No, absolutely not. That's great. And the money to boot. Yeah. Hmm. Good. See, um, that's that. That's what we got to learn is where do we spend the money to get the best bang for the money? Is the best bang for the money uh, to give it to uh, public school? Would it be better to target it to the poorer of the world of America. We could fund projects for you know, protection for grizzly bears from schools. We could, we could, yeah, make sure grizzly <laughs> bears, because you, you might need a gun. Right. To keep a grizzly bear, according to DeVos in her hearings. And that'll be her job. As well, she and that'll decides be. Where public money versus. But it still sounds like most of these Senate uh, hearings are going well for the Trump cabinet. I mean, they're, they're, it seems like they're all going to get through so far. Uh, 
Yeah, but I think it'll take longer than expected. In fact, did so you hear- I, I don't know if they'll have as many. Like they, well, uh, McConnell was talking about having like six confirmed yeah. by the time that Trump takes office, and they do have more time now with the weekend and all. But now they can get stuff done. Yeah, I don't know if that's going to happen. But Donald, it, it looks like Donald after his inauguration, he's, he will go in and sign in all those that have been approved. He'll immediately sign in, so they will all become immediately active cabinet members. They want to have the security. They want to have the defense and the CIA and those types of. You got to get these people the security done. council. Right. They want those in place, which makes sense. Yeah, but I don't know if that's going to happen either. Even though most of them seem to be progressing well. And today, by the way, Rick Perry. Uh, After is, someone informed him the full duties of his office. He's like, what? He thought he was going to be the ambassador for U.S. oil around the globe. And apparently. Not manage our. Our nuclear arsenal. <laughs> our weapon systems. He's like, oh, really? Oh. <laughs> well, nobody told me that. Huh. Also, this is the guy that wanted to close down the energy department. Well, once he remembered which one. And he that, forgot. So he couldn't remember exactly which one it was. And he. But you know he he's he has his hearings today. I mean, there's a lot there's a lot still going on. Plus, Trump, Donald Trump, President Elect is on the way to Washington D.C. He was there last night. Oh, he was. There well, was a, well, they're announcing this morning he's leaving a, New York to go to well, D.C. today. There was a dinner for Mike Pence, and then he went by the Trump Hotel, which was that old post office. Yeah. Then he flew home because he sleeps in his own bed, <laughs> and now he's flying back to D.C. He's going to hate the White House because. <laughs> He won't have his own bed. Well, maybe I mean, they can move his bed. There's something about his bed. He probably is, has one of those is there something sleep bigger number, than, memory foam. Yeah, is there something bigger number. than a California king? Because he has it if, it, if it's oh, yeah. there. And would it fit in the White House? I well, it's an, it's, I think they call it's, an, it, it's an older building. It's a New York real estate mogul. Is that what it That's is? That's the size of it. Okay. It's huge. <laughs> With a really big pillar to he, put his head on. He keeps flying back and forth. Yeah. And like so last night, like I was saying, he – he made that flight again. I mean, I guess it's only probably a half hour, 40 minute flight. But just the hassle of go to the airport, oh, get yeah. in your car, get through security. I mean, he doesn't have to deal with but most of that. He's this might the be the last time he just gets to stay home, you know, that now he has to live in the White House blah, 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 with all these people helping you. Unless they make, you know, Trump Tower. Maybe they'll his maybe satellite office. Hey, don't give him ideas. He's already calling Mar-a-Lago the winter White House. Oh, that's good. So that's where. That's where, he, where he'll go to. Did you see the photo of him writing his speech? No. His inauguration mm. speech. Apparently, he was sitting at the uh, the reception desk. Oh, really? Yeah, because they took the picture, and you have this background. It has the statue in the back and everything. It's got like a, a unique sort of textured wall behind uh-huh. it. And then there's these pictures from the website where you see the receptionist sort of welcoming you, and it's the same background. Hmm. You're like, doesn't he have a desk down there? He's down there that yeah. often. Doesn't he have an office? But, well, he'll, they'll get him a presidential desk there. Yeah. So, but apparently he had a sharpie and a that's great. Had a tablet and he was going for it. It'll be yeah. I mean, it'll be. You you shouldn't you shouldn't uh, use a sharpie on your tablet. Well, you know, maybe no, you know, (laughs) a pad of paper. Tell him how you learned that lesson, Jeffrey. No, no, no. That's just that was one of the other many lessons I've learned with you know about being a homeowner. Yep. Never use a sharpie on a tablet. Hey, do you remember what was happening eight years ago? When Obama started eight years ago, guess how many uh, uh, tweets were sent out a day on Twitter? No idea. 300,000. Today, 500 million tweets a day. Yeah. It's what got Donald elected, maybe. That's probably, I mean, that's where he makes all his big announcements. Right. Um, Facebook, back then, 150 million active users. Do you know how many today? A billion? 1.79 billion 
active users worldwide. Back then, uh, they launched the first season of his um, Apprentice show, I guess. Hmm. Pierce Morgan wins. Now, Arnold Schwarzenegger is doing the reboot. The reboot. All of his business experience. Breitbart News, back then, ranked 3,330 on the global ranking of websites. Today, 261. And save seats at press conferences, too. May have helped get him elected. Right. <laughs> Brands back then that were big, Blockbuster Video, Circuit City, Borders, and Saturn. We just went to a Burger King that was converted from a Blockbuster Video. Really? Yeah. They still had the Blockbuster sign underneath it, minus the logo. Wow. Hmm. With the little, oh, Wow. That's, you should take a picture of that. Put and, that in the history book. And just like a blockbuster, we were the only ones in the restaurant. <laughs> uh, the, the brands today, Uber, Instagram. I mean, times have changed. Back then, same-sex marriage allowed only in two states, Connecticut and Massachusetts. Today, all 50 states. Crazy. Back then, when Obama did his little uh, – that really big coliseum thing, people had flags. Everybody in the audience, was, they were waving all these flags. Today, at his last farewell speech, no flags, just phones. Yes. Times are changing. Yeah. Isn't that all, crazy? All you see is the light from phones. Don't you wonder what will be 10 years from now or eight years from now? No, you don't, do you? You don't, I don't care. know. You don't care. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I like what it is now. It'll change. Do you? You, yeah. li- you like what it is now. I like, I like the way things are they're good right now. But do you like, you like how it'll change? I mean, you want it to change. If it's better. Yeah. Well, it'll be better. I mean, Netflix will be a lot bigger. <laughs> Apparently. They keep growing. It's got to be, right? Um, so when we, when we think about this, Donald Trump uh, tomorrow around, what they say, 9.30, the thing begins, I believe, 9.30 Eastern time. I think it's – yeah, in about noon Eastern, he takes the oath, I okay. think. Yeah. Um, so do, do you think eventually everyone will just get over it and just start liking Mr. Trump? Did they get over Obama? Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> Not for eight years. <laughs> well, do you think that the rhetoric will continue at this level or do you eventually believe, as many of his people are saying – you're all going to like Donald as president. You may not have liked him as Donald as candidate right? because he was playing to well, win. People haven't liked him as president-elect so far because his numbers since he was elected until yeah. now have even dropped. <laughs> if, if he starts not acting like he's running for office. Yeah. I mean that, that, that was – I mean when you're running for office, someone attacks you, you go after them and, you know, that's Paul. But – once you be, once you get the job, it's like mm-hmm. you keep attacking, and I think that might have a his, a hit on his numbers. His inner circle keeps saying, "Once you see him as president, you'll see that he 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 will." And you'll hear this in his address. Mm-hmm. He's he's now the president of all the people, and you will see that in his language, yeah. in his rhetoric. But really, you got to thank Obama because, again, uh, if anything, even his enemies now revere him as somebody that didn't have a lot of scandal, that didn't embarrass the country too much right i mean which is i guess a compliment here is a clip of um 
uh, President Obama because he he stepped into the media. What do they call that? The, the me, press room. The, the news conference. Yeah, the me, yep. with the press uh, conference. And this is President Obama thanking the media. But I have enjoyed working with all of you. That does not, of course, mean that I've enjoyed every story that you have filed. Uh, but that's the point of this relationship. You're not supposed to be syncophants. You're supposed to be skeptics. You're supposed to ask me tough questions. You're not supposed to be complimentary. Uh, but you're supposed to cast a critical eye on folks who hold enormous power and make sure that we are accountable to the people who sent us here. And you have done that. There you go. Classy. And again, loves, not loves, but respects the media, something Donald Trump struggles with a bit. We told you about we would have a media person, our very own Chick Shumway, um, on the scene at the inauguration, and um, he, he wanted to he wanted to be there the full two days is the impression I got. He wanted to be there today and tomorrow um, because there's not a lot to report on today. So, but but he wanted to file a report. Um, okay, let's. Well, okay. Can you toss it over to him? Let's. I'm a little worried about what he wants to okay. say. Well, let's just turn it now to Shik Shumway from Empty News. Matt, I'm standing here on the west lawn of the U.S. Capitol building in anticipation for President-elect Trump's inauguration. And things are looking pretty sparse. Research indicated this might be the case, but the turnout here today is much lower than I'm sure anyone expected. There were no security screenings. I was able to walk right in without incident. There are plenty of people passing by, catching a glimpse of the Capitol, but nobody seems to be sticking around for the main event. Great news for me, I'll end up with a much better seat now, but disappointing news for those hoping to see a peaceful transition of power. I'll continue to bring you live coverage of Trump's inauguration throughout the morning. Back to you, Matt. Hmm. That almost sounded like he... Yeah. Does he think it's today? Well, I I don't know how he could think that the inauguration is today. I mean... I think he thinks it's today. Because he's reporting on it like it's today. And he's surprised that there's nobody there. Should we... Should we give him... Should we call him? Does Schick read a newspaper? I mean, he's our news guy. Does he read the paper? Does Schick have a cell phone? Sheesh. He, I think he has a pager. Can we page him and, and let yeah. him know? Should we? Well, well, let's have Terry page him, yeah, and find out what he's doing. I That's embarrassing. Well, apparently, but apparently he wants us to toss to him again in an hour. So What, so we can find out how it's all going? How does there the guy, might be breaking news. He misses the launch of Rogue One by a month, and now he misses the inauguration. He's a day early. Chick Shumway. Man, if he wasn't your brother-in-law, he wouldn't be here. Not to be rude. You promised you weren't going to divulge that information. Sorry. Just... Somebody get that man a phone, a smartphone, so he can look up. Just all you had to do is look up CNN. Ah, it's hard to find good help. But that's fake news. That's fake news. We'll take a break, folks. We'll be back talking about how government should be spending our money. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. 
The foundation of the American dream is upon the ideals of equal opportunity and the willingness to put in hard work, right? Over the past 30 years, the pay gap between the top 1% and the middle class has gotten increasingly bigger, and opportunities to jump social and economic classes are far and few in between. Today, inequality in America is becoming a hereditary gene. How can we correct this? The answer is institutionalized empathy. Here to speak with us today is Edward D. Kleinbard, the author of the book, We Are Better Than This, How Government Should Spend Our Money. Uh, Edward Kleinbard is um, the Ivadel and Theodore Johnson Professor of Law and Business at the University of Southern California Gould School of Business. And we appreciate you being with us. Thanks so much for uh, taking the time with us today. Thank you very much for inviting me. What uh, what a, an interesting book. I mean, one of your the, the it seems like the premise of a lot of what you're saying is government just isn't serving us financially anymore. Well, that's true. Government uh, is um, not serving us as well as government could, and it's doing that for for a reason that comes as a surprise to a lot of us, which is that government is too small and not too big. Mm. We don't call on government to do the kinds of things uh, that a government can do better than the private sector in complementing the private sector, not competing with it, to uh, improve economic mobility, to improve opportunities, because I do believe that that is one of the great hallmarks uh, of, uh, of America, the idea that there is equality of opportunity, and we're failing ourselves in, in that respect. And I also believe that we're failing ourselves in respect of our obligations to each other. Mm. So on the one hand, uh, if we had a more of what I call a complementary economy, where we recognize how government and the private sector work together uh, in places where the private sector can't carry the load by itself. Public education, uh, uh, the classic uh, example uh, of that. Uh, uh, We can be richer, and we can share that increased wealth more broadly. But then at the same time, I've spent a lot of time thinking about what do I owe my fellow Americans? What, What does it mean to be a citizen of this great country. And uh, I believe uh, that, that uh, what it means is uh, to feel a connection to an empathy, an empathy with my fellow citizens whom I don't know. And if hmm. I did know, I probably wouldn't like them. <laughs> but that doesn't matter. They, they are my fellow citizens. And the way that we express that, the way we express that, that empathy towards all of our fellow citizens, the way we actualize that is through government fiscal policy, taxing and spending. That's the way we relate to each other. And that's the theme of what I call our fiscal soul. Because mm. don't you think, I mean, even the way, right when you said it, Ed, that we need a bigger government, you could almost hear half of the listening audience think, what? Get real. And the, and the other half uh, uh, tuned to another station. That's yeah. what, exactly. And, and what's so interesting, though, I think, is 
Because you're not saying we need government to be bigger just to be bigger. You're saying we need government to be bigger, but really more focused on what government can do. Yes, sir. And, and cooperative with business so that businesses themselves would grow better and bigger and we'd create a more educated workforce. We'd create more wealth in the country if we would actually be complementary with government instead of fighting government. Sure. I mean, take uh, uh, the one, one uh, classic uh, example. Uh, you know, about two-thirds uh, of our national income every year is from our own labor. And, and if you were to ask uh, what is the largest uh, asset class, you think in a, in a banker's terms, you know, what is the largest asset class in the United States uh, from an economic perspective? The answer is us, ourselves, human beings. Uh, and then the question is, are we investing enough in that asset class mm. to fully develop its potential? And the answer is no. Uh, to phrase it in, in, a, in a more uh, uh, straightforward way, uh, if we believe in equality of opportunity, it follows, it, and that must follow, that we um, must demand comparable investments in comparably able kids, regardless of the wealth of their parents. And only, only government, only government can be the investor there. Hmm. Private markets don't invest directly in people. And the data are overwhelming. Uh, you spend 10% more on K-12 education, that yields 7.25% higher wages for life. But at the same time, the reality is, is extremely depressing. Uh, school test scores uh, follow home prices in an area which is to say wealthy neighborhoods have better test scores. Um, there are 850,000 high school students in this country who don't even have a school counselor. Mm. Um, 800,000 where uh, more than 20% of the teachers are unlicensed. Uh, are uh, international, I know people uh, may not be aware of it, uh, uh, there are standardized international tests to compare uh, uh, the performance of schools, not just within the country, but across the world. And our, our uh, kids test quite poorly relative to the rest of the world, hmm. um, given, which is doubly frustrating, yeah. given the wealth of the country. And the reason for all this is because most of the United States, uh, uh, we, we behave perversely. We spend more on the public education of rich kids than on poor kids. That, that's upside-down policy, right? Uh, rich kids have other resources to look to. Poor kids don't. Uh, and the, the result is systematic underinvestment in our collective potential, uh, very depressing results where you see that uh, not-so-smart kids uh, from wealthy parents uh, go to better colleges than uh, highly able kids from poor parents. And that leads, in turn, to this very frightening prospect of, of a American neo-feudalism, where the rich perpetuate across generations, not just because there's money to inherit, 
but because they can invest in the human potential of their children. And on the other side, collectively, the government is not investing in the human potential of kids who don't have those kinds of financial resources. So let me let me make sure I'm getting this, Ed, because it's um, the the reality is we, we're not doing well in our testing. Um, we're not raising with all the money we're investing, which is still less than other uh, countries. We're we're not investing it as wisely. You're saying because we 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 invest it. I guess more equally, or I don't even know if it's equally, but with richer families that have the resources already, but we underinvest in the poorer communities, which if we would just invest more there, we would elevate the whole, which in the end would just make everyone wealthier. Yes, yes. Think of us as, uh, just for a moment, think of our, uh, us as machine machines who eat. Uh, you want your machine to perform at, at, its, you know, at its peak level, you've got to invest and maintain the machine. Right. Uh, and there are lots of other examples. I mean, you, you know, President-elect Trump is uh, very keen on, on public infrastructure, and rightly so. Uh, there are measurable financial returns to infrastructure uh, uh, investment by the public sector. Uh, 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 and yet, at this, at this moment, net net of the wear and tear, the depreciation on on on, on infrastructure, we invest almost about, just about exactly zero in in uh, infrastructure. We all know that yeah. from going to airports or driving um, uh, on on our uh, on our roads, uh, infrastructure pays big returns. The government can borrow at you know at, at Two uh, percent, it can earn eight percent. Who would who, yeah. who would rationally leave that on the table? And at the same time, it puts people to work. It gives people meaningful work. And I believe that one of the unique features of the American psyche is that we define ourselves through our work in a way that most other uh, citizens of most other countries uh, do not. And it what. That means is if we want a less angry and divided country, we need career paths through which people feel that they have remunerative, meaningful work. We're not all going to be software engineers, uh, and uh, the construction trades have always served that purpose of being um, remunerative, productive work that people can feel good about. Uh, and support their families. Uh, and so the infrastructure uh, investment has not just financial returns, but huge social dividends mm. as well. It seems as you're talking, um, I, I just keep hearing the argument of, well, great, so we we give more money because it would elevate the human life here in the United States. I mean, we'd elevate um, the drive and the hope of, of so many people, but giving more money to a government that spends it poorly or unwisely or ineffectively seems like that's part of the rub. I don't want to give more money if it's just going to misspend it. Right. And no government uh, is perfectly efficient. And you know what? Neither is the private sector. No, right. Your listeners, um, uh, many of your listeners work for big companies. 
Um, I work. I've worked uh, a lot in the private sector. Uh, you know, I've done. I've had a lot of jobs over the years. Uh, uh, it's simply not true uh, that uh, that big companies are, are paragons uh, uh, of efficiency, and government is not. But I agree that government is not perfect. We have to keep working to get better. But we cannot do that in, a, in an environment that, that is so poisonous mm. that every mistake is viewed uh, as a reason to destroy government. The whole, that, yeah. That, that, that is uh, a false uh, a lesson to draw. Every mistake is an opportunity to learn and do better and to refocus government. But uh, the fact is that um, we, in this country... Have a, have a complete misconception of what our uh, of, of the size of our government and the size of our tax burdens. We think that we live with a crushing tax burdens here. The fact is that the one place where the United States is number one around the world is in tax whining. <laughs> we we are the lowest taxed big country in the world. The mm. lowest taxed. Uh, we raise about 26% of our national income in taxes at all levels, federal, state, local. Germany, 36%. Wow. Uh, Ten percentage points difference would be it would be $1.5 trillion more oh. in tax revenues uh, a year. We are a low-tax country, and we are a small-government country. We are a small-government country in which... Uh, uh, working for government has become um, uh, an object of contempt and derision. Yeah. And so government does not uh, attract the best and the brightest. And we've got to stop kick, kicking government and, in, in the teeth and in doing so kicking ourselves in the teeth. Mm. I... Uh, you know, again, it's not just economics. It also is this fundamental question of what I call our fiscal soul. I mean, how else do I relate to all of my fellow citizens, except through the mediation of government, through right. paying taxes and through uh, the spending of those taxes. Well, and Ed, we'll come back and, and continue the discussion. One of the things that I think we got to cover because it's so core to what you're you're saying too is government is has the ability to do certain things that regular you know business and corporations can't do. And there's probably things government is doing that really could easily be handed over to a corporation that might be better or handled better. I don't know that everything the government is into is really uh, can only be done by the government. Um, and so and I also want to talk about your idea of empathy and institutionalized empathy. Um, so many of us believe strongly in, you know, in taking care of people, loving them, the Christian ethic, the Judeo-Christian ethic. And yet, uh, we many times the conservatives are the ones that are the least wanting government to be that empathic entity. So we'll come back, continue the discussion. We're talking about how government uh, should spend our money. We are better than this. How government should be spending our money by Edward D. Kleinbart. Stick with us.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joined by Edward D. Kleinbard, who is a professor of law and business at the University of Southern California Gould School of Law and also a fellow at the Century Foundation. He's, all, he's the author of the book, We Are Better Than This, How Government Should Spend Our Money. And uh, we appreciate you being with us, Edward. Thank you. Thank you very much. This really, I mean, we are so polarized on it. And it's, you know, you, every time you say more government, every conservative says, what? No way. We're, and then like the taxation argument that you cleared up for us that as far as other, you know, countries, we're not as taxed. Um, but one thing I, I, I need your help with, because conservatives tend to be Christian, you know, kind of the Judeo-Christian ethic, a lot of middle America, very... Uh, believing in that you should the Good Samaritan kind of rule all of these um, Christian beliefs, um, but yet we, we may are we lacking empathy? Because one of the points you're bringing up is government is really through taxing and through spending, government is an entity that really should be an empathic, caring, giving a lift to the common man, and yet many don't like that idea. Right. Well. First, let me say it is possible to be a progressive and to embrace Judeo-Christian principles. Absolutely. I want to be very clear yeah. about that. <laughs> is that, that true? No, yeah, uh, absolutely. It, it, that's, those principles aren't owned by one end of the political spectrum or the other. I think there is a big problem in this country that um, uh, many of us sort of forget that and, uh, in fact, uh, 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 treat our fellow Americans as if they were the enemy. Mm. Rather than or the infidel, uh, right? Rather than fellow citizens uh, who have policy disagreements uh, 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 with them, so uh, uh, the, the values the values that are ultimately shared. It's the question of how do we deliver them. And I understand the idea that that um, um, uh, many conservatives embrace. Uh, try to do things at the local level, try to do things uh, through church or synagogue, for example. Uh, uh, I understand that. You know, one of the things I always liked uh, about what, when I used to live in New York City, about my temple there, Temple Emanuel, you know, was uh, that uh, it raised a lot of money. Mm. It was a wealthy congregation, uh, and it, it spent a significant amount on uh, uh, programs helping poor New Yorkers uh, uh, who were not Jewish, who had nothing to do right. uh, with the faith of the congregation. I always thought that was a, a nice feature. But there are limits uh, to what we can do through charity. And um, charity is not a substitute for government. Uh, charity, uh, particularly uh, through uh, our uh, uh, congregations, uh, uh, has a number of drawbacks. The first is that it tends, to, from the point of view of the country, from the point of view of the kinds of big issues I'm talking about, about poor kids systematically not going uh, uh, to the best universities regardless uh, of their ability, those kinds of issues. Uh, 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 charity, uh, and in particular faith-based uh, charities, tends, tends to be too inwardly focused. It tends to be focused on people of the same faith, mm -hmm. in the same congregation. In the same and, neighborhood, yeah. And uh, my point is that what fiscal policy, that is taxing and spending, what fiscal policy does is it, is it connects me 
to people I don't know, people who uh, have completely different backgrounds or different faiths or no faith at all. But they connect me to all of that because we are all in it together by virtue of being citizens of this great country. Uh, and uh, that's one thing that uh, 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 the, the charitable impulse, which is a wonderful impulse, cannot uh, in general reach. Second, it's just not enough money. A lot of your listeners are very generous, and they give you know, significant uh, amounts uh, to, uh, uh, to uh, their congregation or to charity generally. Uh, some of your listeners tithe. That is great. And, you know, I, 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 I applaud that. Um, I, I try to you know, emulate that to the extent I can. But uh, it's just not enough money. Uh, uh, this is a 15-plus trillion dollar economy. The kind of problems we are talking about, the systematic underinvestment in public education, uh, the, the systematic underinvestment uh, in infrastructure, and with it both the financial and social returns that I talked about, and other examples, these, these are numbers uh, uh, that are in the hundreds of billions of dollars uh, and, and cannot be uh, replicated uh, simply through giving. And then maybe more controversially, um, I kind of, you know, I, I kind of like uh, the Buddha's point here that um, uh, that uh, extinction of the ego is not is not such a bad uh, thing no. to work towards, and we have to be honest with ourselves and acknowledge that when we give through, through uh, charity, we get something back. In, whether you know whether it's our our name on a plaque on the on the wall, uh, the local congregation, or whether it's you know in the annual publication, or whether it's just a psychic glow from having been a good person. One of the qualities of taxation and spending that I actually like is the fact that I get no psychic glow from it. I don't like writing the checks any more than right. you do. But to my way of thinking, that makes it really you know, a sacrifice in its giving. And finally, I think we have to look at it from the other perspective and realize that government programs that are available to everybody regardless uh, you know, uh, uh, who, who meet whatever the relevant criteria are, uh, income or family size or whatever, uh, uh, are, are in many ways less demeaning to those recipients than is, than is standing in line at a soup kitchen yeah. or getting a, 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 you know, a bag of groceries uh, at, at, at the local congregation. And I think we need to think about how we relate to our fellow citizens in ways that don't inadvertently demean them. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's I think I think it is because there's a dignity to uh, and you want to help help maintain face and and a dignity uh, about the human being. Is it I guess one of the things that um, I I would really love to see is. Government clearly knowing what they do well and what they don't do well and and letting business do what business could do incredibly well yes. and let government do – like even the whole healthcare initiative, it, it seems like uh, businesses might do it well with some regulation, but they weren't, I guess, because that's why uh, so many people weren't insured and weren't getting their needs met. Um, 
But how does the government bridge letting business do business and let them do it in their competitive way while regulating in a way that doesn't become overreaching? You know, um, uh, uh, people uh, keep track of data on sort of the competitiveness of countries. And I'm a great believer in benchmarking Mm -hmm. the United States against other wealthy countries. That's why I emphasize that we're a low-tax country, not a high-tax country. Uh, That's why I emphasize that we spend less on social, um, uh, uh, social programs than other countries. And what we do spend, by the way, goes to the geezers like me. (laughs) Yeah, the seniors, uh, yeah. Yeah, yes. Not that you're a senior, but not a geezer. Yeah, yeah, that's a more neutral term. (laughs) Uh, uh, We spend a lot more on seniors uh, uh, relative to the relatively small amount that we spend on uh, social programs uh, generally uh, compared to other countries. And by the same token, when you look at competitiveness data, the United States usually ranks like number two in the world mm. as, a, as, a, as a business environment behind Singapore. And we're a very, very different uh, 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 small country. So business here, again, is, um, uh, high, has a high-pitched, shrill kind of voice about the many burdens uh, to which uh, it is subject, but it's just not true. Our labor markets in particular are very flexible, uh, which is to say you can get fired, uh, uh, which creates a lot of individual insecurity, but what makes uh, uh, it much easier for businesses to be nimble. Uh, Our regulations are not as burdensome as those uh, in other wealthy countries. So the idea that, that government is holding back business just isn't supportable uh, when you look at the facts. There, there may be some individual cases uh, here and there at the margins, but the fact is the government has two great roles to fill. One of them is in investment, where private markets don't do a good job, and education is one, uh, public infrastructure is another. I'm, I am not a believer in public-private infrastructure environments. I talk about that in the book as to why that's so. But the other is insurance. Mm. and. Insurance works. Insurance is, uh, is the queen of financial products. It, it's you know, it's for seven hundred years. Uh, it has served a fantastic purpose, which is to sh- to shift risk, financial risk, away from me to uh, someone else, and to share that risk. And it, when you work through how that applies in the health arena. You come to some conclusions, which we we see play out in the Affordable Care Act in Obamacare, which is that for that risk shifting mechanism to work, that risk distribution mechanism to work, we all have to be in the risk pool. Right. And what follows from that? What follows from that is that every other major economy in the world has found that the central role of healthcare, which is an existential imperative, you know. Yeah. Uh, everything else we can talk about, but you know, uh, but you know, uh, continuing to live <laughs> is very yeah. important to me. Right. Uh, so, this existential imperative is something that um, is best handled by government. Now, there are different ways of doing it. You can have a single payer model. You can have a 
uh, a single provider model like we do for the Veterans Administration and that uh, the UK does for its national health. Uh, but uh, if you're going to accomplish the uh, purpose of insurance, you need everyone to be in the pool. In effect, one way of looking at it, you know, the, the great problem with the Affordable Care Act is the penalties weren't enough. Yeah, that uh, didn't move people. Uh, so the young and the healthy who believe themselves to be invulnerable don't go into the pool, the risk pool. But a way of looking at, at that is that if young me wants to have insurance when I'm old and sick, I got, uh, I've got to be in the pool now, now have it available for me then. People, unfortunately, are not that far-sighted. None of us is. Yeah. You know? And, um, and that's why every country in the world has some kind of mandatory participation in a national health care of some kind, whether yeah. it's single provider, single payer, uh, uh, private insurance, but mandatory insurance meeting certain criteria. There are yeah. lots of ways you can do it. But well, the idea is everybody's got to be into the pool. Well, I, I agree. And I think, I think in the end, that's the hard part. I mean, and that is where government seems to be able to help is compelling people into the pool forcing people, moving people into the pool, then the balance, right? Then uh, maybe find ways to let the professionals do their jobs. Um, and I, it's a very complex issue, but Ed, we appreciate you and your time. Again, Ed Kleinbard's his name. If you go uh, look up the book, We Are Better Than This, How Government Should Spend Our Money, it opens your mind a lot about the need to, to be empathic still. We, we still want to be an empathic country. And if we can lift everybody, everybody will benefit. We shouldn't choose not to lift people simply because of where they were born or how they were born. We'll take a break, folks. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends. You know, it's everyone's going to have a take, right, and a and a view. And so, be very careful. You're you're kind of either pro government or you're against government, and it doesn't mean you're right. There are things government probably shouldn't be doing. They're not good at it. There's other things that they're the only group or entity that can do it effectively on a national level. We uh, we we need a leader, somebody that can help bridge the two that can still have an incredibly empathic heart trying to lift and elevate those truly that are in need and simultaneously allowing businesses to thrive and creating a cooperative partnership. It can exist, but it takes it takes a true visionary. That's why we hire the leader, right? Uh, hopefully we've hired leaders that can do the job. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1 855 Chat BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. Happy Thursday to you. Again, you've, you've made it almost through the week. Not that your goal is just to get through a week, but you've done it. And 
tonight the party begins. Or right now, if you're Shik Shumway. Yeah, we have one of our great uh, reporters, Shik Shumway, from Empty News, is on the scene at the inauguration. Um, he was in for a big surprise. Uh, Shik Hat was just a day off, just one day off of the big event. And he probably hasn't checked his pager yet because we've tried to reach him to let him know that. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, we need to get him a cell phone. Well, yeah. You'd think Schick, just as a human being, would have got his own cell phone. He's old-fashioned. But he gets paged and what? He looks for a phone booth? Do you find a phone booth anymore? I don't know. Schick Shumway. He's on the scene. We'll have his live report from the inaugural address of President Trump, but a day before it's happening. Unbeknownst to him. (laughs) Unbeknownst to have you seen the pictures of the practice that the security, I guess, apparatus there did for the inauguration? No, they had someone dressed as as Trump and someone dressed as Melania, and they're walking down the middle of the road waving to people. Are they really? I hope it was Johnny Depp. No, it was Donald Trump. Two army officers, I believe. Oh my heavens, that's a good. I got to check that picture. It was an interesting picture. They were smiling a lot. People were questioning if if that's accurate. Will Trump smile? Yeah. He doesn't have a smile. Sometimes it's, I don't know. No, he just, yeah, it's kind of a grin. Is it a grin? Some call it a grimace. I wasn't going to go that way. That's more of a McDonald's character. And then he gives, then he just gives a little thumbs up. Yeah. Which in many countries is not a good thing. (laughs) We'll figure that out. He's not, he's not a man for every country. He's a man for, apparently all the tickets are sold out. For all the balls, all, except for the the mall. So how many of those did he purchase? Well, a lot. And he, I saw an estimate of 800 million people. What? Well, no, no, 800,000. 800,000 people. I mean, 800 million. Wow, that's a lot of people. Apparently the audience is 190 million people will be watching this. It's a big deal. Says who? These Says those, who? Are these those polls again? No, these are – I mean, this is these, – these are the – that was the person in charge of the inauguration huh. was saying it's anticipated 190 million people. So it's worldwide, right? It'll be worldwide. Oh, that, that, like I was telling you, when I was on my cruise and I walk into a, a restaurant in Belize and the whole place was watching this inauguration, I'm like, why are you guys watching our country? Because we're, we're amazing. I guess. I was a little stunned. I was like, is this even happening? Oh, there it is on TV. Interesting news. It. I'm sure we'll get to Donald Trump paid $25 million off to the uh, Trump University people. He finally – he settled it and wrote the check right. I think yesterday. He's being sued by more people? Or, yeah. Well, uh, you, that's the thing. Harassment. When you're big like Mr. Trump, you, you get yeah. sued by everybody. Yeah. See, well, we're you, never sued. No. And you know, I feel bad about it. You want to be sued more? Nah. I'm okay. Good. Well – I'm just kidding. But when you're big, you get sued. You just get used to that. Right. You know. We've got a lot to talk about. We'll be speaking um, about how your mind filters out experiences. And what it might be filtering out is a connection to a higher power Hmm. or a universal power from a great neuroscientist. Wow. Also, a meditator, the one that a person that, like spent a lot of time meditating in her life, and a neuroscientist, and has figured out that maybe the mind makes it so we actually struggle connecting to the higher power we connect to when we meditate. 
and our mind may have a purpose, kind of the natural mind may have a purpose of keeping us from that. You just blew my mind. <laughs> well, I'm sincerely sorry. Marjorie Woolacott will be joining us, author of the book Infinite Awareness. We'll talk about that in a minute, and what we need it. We need more awareness in this world. Plus, uh, we'll get to Shuk Shumway, find out what's going on at the inauguration, and just some crazy news, some of which might even be important to you. But first... To the serious news from Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? When Bill Clinton was sworn into office 24 years ago, every single member of his cabinet but one was confirmed by the Senate within two days. When Donald Trump is sworn in on Friday, he'll be lucky to have half that many installed. Trump will also likely face by far the most dissenting votes from the Senate minority of any new administration in history. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Minority Leader Chuck Schumer are in negotiations about approving much of Trump's national security team Friday, potentially giving him a defense secretary, a CIA chief, and a homeland security head on day one. Yes. Not sure what day that would be, of course, as we're... Is it day four? Is it day four, one? Day one. But it'll be well after the... What do they call it? The sensual celebration? The soft and sensual. The soft and sensual celebration of the inauguration. So, we'll see what happens. There seems to be a major traffic jam getting these approvals taken care of. NASA and the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration announced Wednesday that 2016 is officially the hottest year on record, making it the third consecutive year in a row that the previous record temperature were surpassed. Mm. So there's that. On uh, This says on Wednesday, Scott Pruitt, President-elect Donald Trump's choice to lead the Environmental Protection Agency, said during a Senate confirmation hearing that he does not believe that climate change is a hoax. There you go. So that's promising for that issue. Moving on, U.S. Air Force B-2 bombers and drones attacked a pair of Islamic State military camps in Libya seeking to eliminate extremists from uh, ISIS, the Pentagon announced Thursday. The strikes were carried out overnight, authorized by President Obama, marking perhaps the final use of military force by a wartime president who has intervened in Libya in 2011 when they took down uh, Muammar Gaddafi. Mm. Now, do you think there's time for Obama to, you know, get another military exercise in before he leaves? Uh, well, he got one in last night. <laughs> yeah, there will be time. Yeah, he's got some more. time. I think it's a little, little he, early to he, say he's he done. He wants it done, I'm sure, by like 8 in the morning. <laughs> That's sad. <laughs> Moving on, President-elect Trump's nominee for Health and Human Services uh, Secretary, uh, Representative Tom Price of Georgia, stressed the, vi- the, the vitality of choice while promising health care access for every single American. Okay, so let's get that straight. Yeah. Vitality of choice yes. while promising access to everyone. Yes. Access. So everyone will have access and the choice will have vitality. As Bernie Sanders said yesterday... I have access to buy a $10 million home, but I can't, obviously. So how is access different than universal coverage? And well, there was a so is Bernie saying everyone should have a $10 million home? No, he just says that we all have access to that, but we can't do it. So uh, what's the... See, notice this is just it's all verbiage. mincing words, yes, right? Yes, it's all verbiage. Yeah. Uh, Price laid out his six principles for healthcare, including affordability, accessibility, quality, responsiveness, innovation, and choices. And he, huh. he makes sure that we're not pulling the rug out from anybody. Everyone's going to have health care. Let's not scare everyone by saying that we're going to take your health care and leave right. you uncovered. Yeah. Don't – basically, don't do any of the things the Republicans did eight years ago. We're not bringing that up, Matt. Don't bringing do up, that. Bringing up past does do, not help. Be different. Use a different playbook, Democrats. You're a mediator. You help people in marriages. You know that bringing up the past – 
not doesn't good. help. Uh, finally, Trump's getting a new fleet of cars. Oh, they're oh called, yeah, new they're, limos. New limos. They're called the Beast. They were they're basically the rolling tanks. Yeah. It says the Cadillac will be equipped with weapons including tear gas cannons, a shotgun, even bottles of the president-elect's blood type in case of emergencies. These are similar to what yeah. President Obama's car had. Uh, the underside is impervious to roadside bombs, so good benefit. Run flat tires, so if someone mm-hmm. tries to take out the tires, you can still do it. Uh, the uh, reportedly plated with military-grade armor, making the doors so heavy that the, the people inside the Trump will not be or inside the car will not be able to open. The doors. Someone will have to open them from the outside. Wow. The only window that can roll down is the driver's side because sometimes you have to pay tolls. <laughs> you know, because yeah. it's, it's sealed against any sort of bio attacks, that kind of thing. That's amazing. Yeah. It's quite the uh, – You've seen that. You've seen the Secret Service. They always use like two hands to open the door. It's a yeah. huge – it's bigger than and thicker than an airplane door. Yeah. It's quite heavy. There's 12 of them apparently. Are there really? 12 Fif- cars? There, in the, there's a fleet. Yeah. Well, because and they send them to different cities. There's approximately 12 cars that carried President Obama around. Yeah. Because they get, they, they get put on the airplane ahead of him. That's right. you got to have it. Convoys there. Yeah. Waiting. It's not like they use a, a foreign country's car when no the president way. shows up. Come well, on. It's crazy. And I read that they have uh, hydraulic lifts in the car mm-hmm. because of the one time it got stuck at an embassy. Yes. It got high centered. Well, that and, you know, if you want to have your car hop to the music. Well, yeah. How cool is that? Got some switches inside. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the president's just rocking it with Melania. I don't. I don't see Jerry Seinfeld showing up for any comedy shows with the president. No. Okay. No. Apparently, no stars are showing up. Well, that, that's not what they wanted. No. After the stars said they didn't want to come yeah. to the well, actually, again, the spokesperson for the 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 chairman of the inaugural ceremony says yeah. there will be a lot of stars showing up. They're actually calling off the, – the phone's being ringing off the hook because a lot of them now want to be a part of it. Oh. So tomorrow you will see right. a lot of stars, yeah, like there's famous people. A couple of uh, contestants from America's Got Talent. I'm not, sure Pierce, not winners, but no, right. contestants. Pierce Morgan, he'll probably sure. be there. And then if you wait Amorosa. until about 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock at night, you'll see a lot of stars. Hmm. Yo. Lots. Great. Well, depending if there's an inversion. This is a workmanlike inauguration. That's great. It's all about the people. That's great. See? This is the news you don't get. In fact, we have sent one of our uh, – I think I, I think one of our best reporters from Empty News. He um, would appreciate that. Shik Shumway. He, by the way, Shik is about 0 for 9 on stories. We've sent him to nine stories and I think he hasn't actually – Nailed one of them yet. He's always just a little bit late or a little bit early. But at least you can hear him now, which yeah. is a step in the right direction. Yeah, four of his nine, we couldn't even hear him because he was like in an exploding factory or whatever. Today, Schick is live from Washington, D.C. Um, as he is going to talk about today's inauguration of President Trump. Schick? Matt, I'm beginning to wonder if this ceremony is going to start on time. There's a crew rapidly setting up chairs, hanging banners, and placing donjons for hundreds of people that likely won't even show up. I'm actually standing here with the leader of the setup crew, who's piecing together some bleachers. Uh, Sir, how many people are you expecting at the inauguration today? Hey, Donnie! Will you hand me that soccer wrench over there? Uh, Who are you? Oh, I'm Shik Shumway with the Matt Townsend Show, and I was hoping you could tell us... How did you get access? 
Well, listen, buddy. We gotta get a move on if we're gonna get these bleachers set up by tomorrow. Ah, my dear fellow. Now I see why you're so far behind in your work. You were under the impression the inauguration was tomorrow. Will you get out of here? We'll continue to track the progress of the setup team members, whose efforts to get the job done in time are inspiring in a way. Back to you, Matt. Thank you, Shik. She was just bothering people. Is that what he was doing? I don't know. I keep hoping he gets arrested. Wow. So he still doesn't know. No. Really. So he hasn't gotten our page. No. We paged. Mm. I mean, I know. I sent two. Terry, uh, Terry sent one from his own pager. What? Pager to pager. I used to have a pager. They were pretty cool. I think we even sent one of our pages there. Yeah, we did. One of the students. Mm-hmm. No word. Nothing. Well, uh, again, Shik Shumway, live from uh, the inaugural inauguration setup, apparently. Hmm. Um, a man is wanted because he dressed up as Where's Waldo? Listen to this story. A man sought by British police taunted law enforcement. <laughs> where's Wally is what they call him in the UK. He taunted law enforcement with a series of Where's Waldo-themed Facebook posts before turning himself in while dressed as the character. North Yorkshire police said officers spent much of the weekend searching for J.J. McMenham, uh, 30, after he failed to show to court for uh, charges stemming from an alleged driving offense. Police said helicopters, sniffer dogs were employed in the search for the suspect. McMenham, who apparently knew police were after him, changed his profile picture on Facebook, took a photo of his face where... Uh, on the animated body of the titular character of Where's Waldo series. And, uh, by the way, Where's Wally in Britain? He said, dude, I'm right here. A caption on the photo reads, the photo was followed by a series of Waldo-themed posts, apparently aimed at taunting police. Could you ever find him? I struggled sometimes. I, it would frustrate me. I Where's Waldo frustrated me? It's so It's so interesting because... He is so hard to find, and yet he dresses just like everybody else. So, <laughs> yeah, that's mm. probably what makes it hard. Mm. Yeah, I'd get mad, and then my kid would say, He's right there, Dad. Duh. Well, if you didn't want to be found, you know, why would you? I mean, if you wanted to be, be your own self, why would you try to dress like everybody else? No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. So he's kind of a, he, he's a sheep. Really? <laughs> He's a sheep in Waldo clothing. And this guy's taunting police. I, we've learned, if anything, on this show, don't taunt people that can put you in jail. Don't. That have tasers or nightsticks, as they might have. Yeah. Tase it. Tase it. Uh, one more story for you. A man fires a shot, barricades himself over a grilled cheese sandwich. Stolen bite out of his grilled cheese sandwich led a Maryland man to fire a shot inside his house and barricade him in the house for hours. Baltimore police, uh, county police spokesman Sean Vincent says the dispute began about 5 p.m. on Sunday. He says a man was eating his uh, eating with his wife and daughter and became angry when one of them took a bite from his sandwich. Wow. He is mad, uh, prompting him to fire a shot inside the house. 
The wife and the daughter fled the house. The man barricaded himself inside. He surrendered peacefully shortly before 9 p.m. No one was injured, and he was able to finish his sandwich. So four hours, that's reasonable. You know, give him the good four hours to kind of cool down, (laughs) let out his steam. Yeah, digest. I mean, you don't want to be arrested on a full stomach. No. Boy, that must be a really good grilled cheese sandwich. But I can, I get it. I can see how you can fight over a sandwich. If maybe, it had sourdough bread, mm, I would be upset. Well, maybe he was starving and really hungry, and then he he had spent all the time making the sandwich and getting it ready. And the next thing you know, someone's eating his sandwich. Honey, where's the shotgun? Crazy. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we'll be talking about awareness and your mind and what your your brain may be doing to filter out some uh, very important information in your life. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. As a neuroscientist, Marjorie Woolacott had no doubts that the brain was purely a physical entity controlled by chemicals and electrical impulses uh, when she experimented with with meditation. And uh, when she did that the first time, her entire world and understanding changed. Woolacott's journey through years of meditation has made her question the reality uh, that she had built her entire career upon as a neuroscientist and has forced her to ask what human consciousness really is. She's the author of the book Infinite Awareness, The Awakening of a Scientific Mind. Marjorie uh, Woolacott is joining us now uh, to talk about her story and help us understand our mind and our consciousness. Dr. Woolacott, thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. This topic fascinates me, and yet it's it's. Uh, I've had others on talking about consciousness, and it gets really heady. Um, so help us understand it. So you were you're a you're a, a PhD in neuroscience professor at the University of Oregon. You've been teaching about the brain and neuroscience and chemistry um, of the brain, and th- and then on the side you're meditating, <laughs> and what happens to you? And you're absolutely um, absolutely right, and I should say that, as you mentioned, when I was first a young neuroscientist, I was totally a materialist because that's what we're trained um, to really understand in neuroscience through all of our research training. And then when I had this experience in meditation, which gave me a broader awareness of reality that I didn't normally had, I began to look into research related to consciousness to find out if there was something that might tell us why in certain states of awareness we might have this vaster consciousness than we normally do. And I then became fascinated by that information and, of course, began even teaching a class in complementary medicine where I talk about some of that research at the university. No, a materialist meaning your initial belief about the brain was that it was all very physiological and chemical, very tangible. It was about the brain matter, material. Exactly. And that my consciousness was only what my sensory... um, filters would actually bring into me like my eyes, my ears, etc. And um, what I think the newer research is beginning to tell us is that what really is happening is there's a vast amount of information that is coming in um, to us through the universe, including, um, you know, not only visual and auditory, but other types of information. And for our survival as human beings, our brain has actually um, 
been constructed um, so that it filters out most of that, or otherwise we couldn't easily get around in the world if we were being constantly distracted by vast amounts of information. So hmm. it's very helpful to us, um, evolutionarily, we might say, in terms of this, um, to be able to be successful in um, the early hunter-gatherers. And for us, you know, if you're in sports, you have to be able to focus on the game in front of you and not on the people in the stands mm. that are making a lot of distractions. So it's very good. But it also has this paradoxical um, function where it also limits our access to vaster consciousness. Oh, wow. See, that's huge. That's huge. That's, yeah. That <laughs> is transcendent. That's because as a guy that believes in God and a higher power that I feel connected to regularly, I can never figure out why it's such a battle for me to stay connected. But what you might be telling me is my brain is in a way, my physiological brain is filtering out that other data so I can live. Exactly. And I think that the beautiful thing about that is once we understand it and we understand it, it's this left side of the brain that's sort of controlling the right side of our body, which is the dominant side of our body, um, is the one that controls our language abilities and all these goal-directed actions. It's very important in the world, but um, it actually then filters out the ability of the right side of the brain, which gives us access to this broader awareness and this mm. broader visual-spatial attention. And so what I think people are beginning to learn that are doing research in this area is that if we can try to like lower the activation level of that left side of the brain, we can become we can have more access to these wider areas of awareness. And is that what they call mindfulness? Then would be, I guess, mindfully yes. uh, lowering that left side of the brain. Exactly. It's like they're they're easy. Um, ways of doing this easiest easy tools that we can do and one of them is simply trying to focus on our breath for example and allow our attention to simply be with the breath and quiet the mind down and then that left side of the brain quiets down and suddenly our awareness um, can become vaster and we can become aware as you say of more this this vast level of consciousness that is around us mm, i love this and um Ah, okay. Here's what I got to know, Marjorie. What yeah. do all of your what What do your fellow neuroscientists think? Well, and that's a wonderful question for you. And I should say that neuroscientists are divided on this, certainly because, like me, most neuroscientists uh, have been growing up with an understanding that it's only the neurons in our brain that are giving us access to awareness around us, and they aren't really aware of anything that they might call vaster. And what's happened is that a few neuroscientists, like myself, have had experiences that give them an awareness of a vaster reality. And also they've begun to do research in near-death experiences, for example, and they're saying the data don't correspond with our materialist worldview that everything is just a product of the activity of neurons in our brain. And I'll, I'll just give you one yeah. quick, quick example. Um, with a number of studies on near-death experiences, and an MD named Bruce Grayson is one of the people that's done the most research. He's at the University of Virginia. They show that a number of people will be, for example, in the um, operating room and their heart will stop. And in this case, their eyes are taped shut to protect their corneas during the operation. And yet when their heart stops and their brain activity is now, um, basically their EEG is flatlined, they would say, no EEG activity in the brain, the people have an awareness um, of, of being above their body, watching everything in the operating right. room. And the point is that they even can tell you details afterwards about who was there, what they were wearing, etc. 
etc. And my materialist worldview as a neuroscientist can't explain that. Mm. So they say, wait a minute, okay, we have something we can't explain. Could we try to find a way of expanding our scientific worldview a little bit to include these verified experiences as part of our worldview? Boy. And... Um... That is because again we I, we've heard of many many ideas too about what um, you know anesthesia all these other things but those are all material views right of why right. the body would feel like it's floating feel like it's looking down on itself but if there is no EEG evidence that the brain is functioning and the person is dead yeah. uh, clinically I guess yeah. Um, then yeah you have to explain it by something else right and I think. What you're saying is very true that the neuroscientists will take an individual case and they'll say, well, maybe there was an anesthetic effect and it caused certain um, ketamines to be released in the brain or something like that, and they might be causing it. And then they'll have another hypothesis. But I think one of the things that the neuroscientists doing research in this area, including, I mean, Bruce Grayson and a man named Pim Van Lomo in the Netherlands say is that if your brain, brain is truly flat, and this means the, the whole cortical area that is measurable through EEGs is flat, that's where you perceive things. And so they say, how can that be that you would have um, hallucinatory ones if your brain is flat? You should have nothing. You should right. just have basically a black consciousness. You would be unconscious. Wow. Is, um, and why are we so slow? I guess because science has a hard time validating this, quantifying it. Why are we so slow yeah. to take on the wisdom of like Asian wisdom that's gone on forever about the consciousness? And that's a wonderful question, and I should say that one of the things I think happens is that this is the worldview we're brought up in from the time we're little kids when we first go to school and in our science classes. And so I think that it's the dominant worldview, and changing your whole worldview is actually a little bit um, unsettling, I would say, for scientists. And also I should say that because we don't believe that these things are possible, the people that are in our governmental agencies that give money to research don't um, actually give money to research in that area because, because they say this isn't real. And mm. one of the things that I found was amazing about this is when I finally began to look at the research that is on the web um, in carefully um, um, critiqued scientific journals, there is a lot of research showing that consciousness is actually more than just the product of neurons in our brain. And once I went up there, I could find article after article, but most scientists won't even look there because they say it can't be true. They yeah. say something must be wrong with the research. I, I can't believe that that's the case. And yet there's, a, there's, I guess, on the edge, on the periphery, there's all of these validated points exactly. that could lead to something. Exactly. And, and so what I always say to my skeptical colleagues is I say, just go to the research and read the articles carefully. Be curious and then make your decision. But just have curiosity because that's what real science is about. Mm -hmm. Is it when do you sense, I mean, at this rate, when do you sense science will accept it and and more and make it a part of our our understanding that there's this greater consciousness, there's this thing bigger than the material? I think that when we perhaps begin to have um, a, another generation growing up of young scientists who may be encouraged um, to actually look a little bit more in the area, I think that's beginning to happen when I look at a few of my younger colleagues. The one problem is that right now our scientific um, structure is such that those people aren't considered credible that do research in this area, and mm. so often it's harder for them to get tenure at a university. So I think what we need to do in universities is um, be willing to um, actually look 
look carefully at the research people are doing and not prejudge it and say this is outside our normal scientific worldview, so we won't even count it. It's so interesting. And then meanwhile, there's such a movement anyway to um, to yoga, to meditation, to Asian um, philosophy. One of the most popular uh, classes at Harvard, and we've had the professor on uh, – it's so loved. It's always full. is is a class on um, Asian philosophy, exactly. And, and people are just craving it because it does bring answers to life. Yeah. So this is the very funny thing I think about our society in general, and that is that sometimes changes come from what I would call the general population up. And the resistant people may be the people that are higher up in our scientific community who have a more conservative worldview. And gradually the students at places like Harvard and University of Oregon, too, when I, when I first began to teach my complementary medicine class, my department had said, nobody will want to take this class. These are all pre-med majors. They won't be interested in that. And I said, just give it a try. Just give it a try. And of course, within like a day of registration, the whole class was filled and there was a waiting list because like in the Harvard class, yeah. people want this. So that was encouraging. Well, and it, it just jibes with our, with our reality, right? I mean, yes. we know there's something more. When you can walk into a room and mm-hmm. sense a tone and a mood, yes. there's something more. There's, so there's got to be an energy. There's got to be a higher connective level of consciousness because you feel it. It's not just I'm gathering data materially. I'm feeling something change. Yes, we can feel an energetic energetic, um, change in the room depending on, you know, as we move from one to another or even when we're interacting with other people. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the scientist says, oh, you're just picking up nonverbal cues. But I think that people that have that awareness know that it's much more than a nonverbal cue when you walk into a room. Right. Because you also might be fixated on – I mean you might be distracted, but you can still sense that something's weird. I mean yeah, yeah it, it's interesting that we, we try to explain it away through our own niche, our own area of specialty, yeah. right? And yet yeah. like what I love about complementary medicine would be let's use multiple mechanisms, multiple belief sets, multiple sciences. Wow. Yes. Powerful. Exactly. Right. And I think that as you said – Things are changing because, for example, I've looked, for example, at Yale University, and they have articles and research studies on, for example, energy healing and how it actually helps heart patients recover their heart rate stability and things like that. They, they become much more healthy in terms of their heart function through things like Reiki, which is an ener- energy healing me- mechanism. So I'm thinking if the medical school at Yale University is beginning to do this research and show valid results in randomized controlled trials, that should help us begin to expand this to our regular hospital settings and perhaps to other scientists yeah. around the world. And also, I guess, too, because it is so unsubstantiated, it's it could be more prone to, you know, to fakes, to, yeah. you know, yeah. people... Absolutely. And I think that's a really good point that you make, too, because in every scientific field, you do have a certain number of people that may, for their own benefit, be um, doing things to the data that are not really accurate. And we know it's not um, any particular area because we hear occasionally a scandal here or there. I always say, look at the research carefully and look to see if it fits in with other research and replicate the research, because then you know, if you can replicate it, that it's real. And, And again, it's just that curiosity to say, let's try that. And then let's see what we think when we do enough studies that we have a broader frame of reference. And then we can say, ah, oh, maybe this really is real. Have you, are you familiar with Lisa Miller? No, I'm not. She wrote a book. She's out of Columbia. And the book is um, the, called The Spiritual Child. Oh, wonderful. You'll, you need to connect with her. She's yeah. been on the show twice, but 
she's just brilliant and Columbia yeah. and is is a leading advocate that there's a spiritual side to us that has very deep rooted academic validity. Oh, well, you know, and I just want to add related to that, as I was just looking at some research on the development of our attentional or our awareness systems, and young children do not have this particular um, attentional network called the executive attentional network actually developed until after seven years of age. And that's the um, area that is really good at um, being able to filter out certain things hmm. um, that aren't useful to us. So, oh, interesting. So that you can really focus. And I'm thinking maybe that's why young children very often can have broader spiritual experiences and they tell their parents about them and the parents look at them like they're crazy. But the child may be having that access that then, as their attentional systems develop, may get a little bit more narrow. And that's what she talks about. And, but I didn't wow. know. I didn't know. But at seven years old, then the child starts having the executive functioning skills to actually filter out the spiritual side or yeah. the the higher consciousness. Yeah, unless they can stay more in that what we would call left um, uh, left side or right brain control that allows um, the uh, ability for us to stay more aware of these boundaries. Mm of our normal awareness, our broader awareness, yes. Well, let's come back and talk about how we, just as average folks, can get can do that, can, can get more right brain control and, uh, and, and manage that left side of the brain to, to bring it down a bit so we can open up the gates to a higher level of consciousness. More with Dr. Marjorie Woolicott. Uh, stick with us, folks. Again, her book is Infinite Awareness, The Awakening of a Scientific Mind. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the line with us is Dr. Marjorie Woolicott. She has been a neuroscience professor at the University of Oregon for more than three decades and a meditator for almost four decades. She also has a master's degree in Asian studies and um, is the author of the book Infinite Awareness, The Awakening of a Scientific Mind. Dr. Woolicott, thank you again for being with us. Thank you. This is um, – you're talking to us about the fact that our brain, our physiological, material, chemical brain is, has, a, has a purpose apparently, which is to filter data. And uh, you, you're also finding out that consciousness, um, which would be I guess – in fact, define consciousness. That's a very good question. What we really mean by consciousness is our awareness, and it can be a limited awareness of perhaps something that's just in front of us, but according to a number of people, including the great psychologist William James, there is a vaster consciousness that we have the capability of having access to. And this would be the example of sometimes when you know someone is going to be calling on the telephone, you just have that intuition when the phone rings, it's going to be your, um, I don't know, brother or another person or something like that, and you find out it actually is. It's like a lot of people have those broader intuitions, and they say that that's a vaster level of consciousness, what we might call a non-local consciousness, that we can tap into when certain parts of our brain are quiet, and then we can actually um, receive this information that's there in the universe waiting for us to receive. Which is one of the goals of meditation, is to kind of get your mind in a neutral space where you are allowed to tap into that higher consciousness. Exactly. 
And you learned this. So you had this this little cognitive dissonance moment where as a, as a professor of neuroscience and a meditator, they kind of came together. And what happened to you in meditation that that created the 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 issue? Yeah, so when I was in a meditation retreat, I had this experience that was so different from my normal awareness of this incredible, like, love, like, radiating from the center of my chest and my heart. And it was like a, a feeling of love and of joy that was bigger than ever, anything I'd ever experienced before. And I also, in that same time, had a sense of of a connection with the rest of the world and the rest of humanity that I had never felt before, this sense of unity. And I remember the words that came to me at that time was, I'm home, I'm home, Mm. my heart is my home. And I realized that I was becoming aware of a new level of um, energy inside of me that was this very joyful, blissful, unitive energy inside of me. And, of course, when that happened, and then I went back home to really try to um, meditate, because now my heart wanted to get back into that place, beautiful joy and unity consciousness, I then found that, of course, it's not that I would instantly get back to that state every moment of my day, but I had to begin to, like, train myself to quiet that um, left side of my brain that's controlling all of my goal-directed actions and all of these thoughts about my to-do list so that I could move forward back to the other side of the brain, that right side that allows me to be more expansively aware, and then I could move back into that place of the present moment and feel that joy and that love, which as we all know, is what so many philosophies and religious traditions call God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, so it's it really is – it's a skill set, it sounds like. And the skill isn't necessarily finding God. It's turning off your brain. Yes, because the, because that awareness is always there when we can, like, quiet the brain down in that moment. You're oh, that's right. so profound. Isn't that – and again, what's beautiful too, just your explanation of it, love and joy radiating through you, connection to the rest of the world, this greater feeling of being home yeah. and, and connected to the universe and everybody. Um, and then I guess too, once you've experienced it and tasted it, does it make going back easier? Absolutely, because then you know you've, you've had it before, and so it's like your whole body now has this awareness that it truly exists, and you can get to it. And then you have this wonderful motivation, at least I did, of like, well, then let me get up in the morning and quiet my mind and spend about, you know, 30, 45 minutes just quieting my mind and practicing focusing on my breath, which is a beautiful way of making ourselves more still so that we're able to connect with this. And then the rest of your day is so much more easeful because you're coming now from this place of, of feeling more unity with the people around you and feeling less challenged by those situations that come up. You can just stay in the present moment and deal with them. And yet you're still uber productive and <laughs> successful and it doesn't diminish you. Because the neat thing about it, it seems like connecting to that higher power and mindfulness is it just makes you a stronger tool and um, person. It doesn't, it doesn't minimize your abilities. It doesn't weaken you. It gives you more. Absolutely. I think that that's certainly been the case in my own life, that um, during these last 40 years since I started to meditate, my scientific research has been um, really expanding. And I think I also am, with that stillness of mind and being in the present moment, I can be more creative during my day. And creativity for a scientist is also, for anyone, is very important. So Mm. I feel that that 45 minutes in the morning of quieting the mind down helps me then move into my day with an equanimity and a sense of creativity that is um, so helpful. So one of the things you're suggesting is 
stay present in the moment, stay present in the now. But I mean, this is what yogis have been trying to teach forever. And I really think even, you know, every pastor is trying to get everybody just present in the spirit now of what they're reading or doing. Talk about what are some other ways we can focus our breath. I mean, it sounds like meditation is kind of the universal skill set. So people could probably go Google meditation and find a bunch of stuff on it. But what, what are other ways? Well, so one thing I would say is that also um, being in nature is another way of really quieting your mind down. And a lot of people do their own, like what we might call a walking meditation in nature, where they're just focusing on their breath and being present as they're walking through nature. And it has an amazing ability to um, open your mind and help you relax and also really get in touch with your creativity. I think that Einstein talked about he would get some of his greatest ideas when he was out on a lake when he was sailing. Mm. And other scientists say the same same thing, that that's when these amazing intuitions come to you. So I would say that it's not just sitting um, by yourself on a meditation mat or on a chair at home, but that's another beautiful way of connecting with the universe. And I find that when I'm walking, I almost have a sense that I can feel the energy of the trees and the plants hmm. around me and, 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 again, feel much more of that unity with the things around me. And it's, it's very nourishing. Oh, and... Because it's so lonely. This world without without it is lonely. Yeah. Even your relationships with people you love, if you can't connect in that higher consciousness, they're still limited. Yes. I mean, I guess you're limited to just material. Yes, it's true. How do you see this? Um, what happens in the next few days um, or next few years or the next few decades – when scientists begin to pick up more of this? Well, you know, the first thing that I wonder about is if scientists really understand the importance of, for example, meditative states and also the, the fact that we may have a vast potentiality of awareness that's open to us if we can begin to practice it. Oh. They might start training children, you know, relatively young, like yeah. when they first get to school, about having curiosity about these things and also train them to quiet their minds and focus on their breaths. And I think if our society could um, really help educate young children, I think that we could really um, change our whole culture that way because we would also become more accepting of people with opposite points of view. We'd be able to listen to them and say, maybe there's some Something in that person that can actually help me understand their point of view and then talk with them carefully about that. Oh, and I guess, too, I mean, and be enlightened by other people's points of view. Plus, imagine what would happen to anxiety, to depression, to other clinical issues that we're dealing with. Wow. Okay, Marjorie, we're going to have you back. I got to have you back. I got to pick your brain. Dr. Marjorie Wolicott's her name. Go find her book, Infinite Awareness, The Awakening of a Scientific Mind. Folks, the data is showing us. There's more out there than your brain will allow you to see, and uh, it's clarifying spirituality as well. Stick with us. We will take a break. When we come back, our own Caitlin Thomas will be joining us talking about what is retro. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. And I realize that everything... Have you ever talked with someone uh, of a younger generation and then you heard them talk about vintage clothing or retro furniture? Because, you know, I have. Uh, I have all these young, what do we call you, millennials around me all the time. In fact, I hear it all the time here at the office. And so we've asked Caitlin Thomas, one of our producers, to come and enlighten us about what is retro as somebody that lived in many of these 
decades where we had all of this now vintage clothing. Yeah, retro. But uh, what is retro? Well, see, I started thinking about this because I coach a drill team, a high school drill team, and tomorrow night they're performing at a basketball game, and yeah. it's the retro game. So the team wears old basketball outfits, and then the drill team gets to put on old costumes with you know, side ponytails, blue eye shadow, and do a retro like dance. Like old meaning like the 50s? No, old meaning like the 80s. Oh. Straight up. <laughs> that you know? doesn't and seem so, very old. But I'm always just laughing. Or just like anything, any, yeah. any time period, anything that's old. But that's why I'm always laughing. I'm like, what exactly is retro? How does something get... Determine get... that it's retro. I think you just let it age. I guess I did some research, and it says that the word retro derives from the Latin prefix retro, meaning backwards or in past times. Going backwards, okay. So I would say maybe, what do you think, 10 years old at least? It can't be retro until it's 10 years old. Well, yeah. Now, is there a difference between retro and vintage? Because vintage to me seems like archaic. Yeah, that was another thing. What's retro and what's vintage? And So vintage, who... retro maybe 10 years, vintage... I would say vintage has to be longer than that. Yeah, Vintage actually uh, is Latin for more expensive. Oh, there you go. There you go. That's just one way. <laughs> but so, I mean, high side ponytails, leotards with l- bright leggings. Who decided that that is what was representative of the 80s? I don't oh, know. I think you just need to see the pictures. I Claw guess. bangs, leg warmers. Those are the trends. Like There had to have been more trends than that, but those nope, are the ones that, that came it. out. So what aspects of 2016-17 will be considered retro in 20 oh, years, Oh, interesting Matt? question. What what parts of my generation will be taken out and made retro in 20 years? Well, it's years? weird because so much of your generation is, is borrowing from, from past other generations. generations. So, but what is unique about the 2016... 17 era? Huh. What, in 20 years, what will high school kids oh, be wearing know, to the retro Oh, I know, for game? sure. Um stretch pants what are they called oh like jeggings is that what they're called jeggings or like yoga pants yeah yoga pants there you go because that's big i mean I, I see people wearing yoga pants all over this game i'm wearing yoga pants oh, right you? now sorry no i think offense. in 20 years the samsung galaxy 7 will make a return oh yeah the mm-hmm. pocket fire we called it the iphone because i bet in 20 years people will just have chips in their arms but it'll be retro to have like a phone that you yeah. hold in your hand look oh my heavens is that a phone so what are they going to wear to the retro basketball game they'll wear um, leggings they'll wear yoga pants some shirt that hangs over they'll tie really something long around their t-shirts. waist they'll have a flannel a flannel yeah definitely uh-huh. a flannel and a furry coat hood you're just describing my outfit right now yeah. <laughs> rude i just get out of i just got out of practice well and i just saw tom brady is getting famous for hugging his wife, Giselle, and he's got a fur coat, like a fur hood on his... Yeah, I don't know. I was thinking on that. I was like, we have... What, and Converse have made a comeback? Maybe those will be retro? Big but, high you know, tops? Converse are retro. Right, and they've totally made a comeback, so yeah. I, I no, have see, so no that's idea. Borrowed, so that was borrowed from the 60s, Yeah, there's 50s nothing really even. original, no, is there? No. So that might tell you something about your generation. You need Skinny to... jeans. Do you think these those uh, will be, come back as super retro? I don't think they will. People have been wearing those for years. I don't see them ever leaving, but what do I know? Skinny jeans, I think, are something that you will look back at and think, uh, why did we do that? <laughs> I, those are the only jeans I wear. Oh, sorry. Matt. I don't mean to be that's rude. Okay. But... Yeah, maybe skinny jeans and... I don't... Flannels? Flannel, but flannels was big I don't back know. in the yeah, day. Yeah, see, this was a really hard question for me to answer. No, I think you borrow a lot. You need to. You guys need to innovate. So is that all the next generations and will tech. do is It'll borrow? It'll be tech and yoga pants and skinny jeans. Huh. 
There's going to be a hike in lumberjack uh, occupation. There will totally as well. Yeah, mm. and the lumberjack workout CD that you brought me the other day. That, yeah, in, where there are guys totally wearing yoga retro. pants and plaid. That'll totally be retro. Um, it's crazy. That's good to think about. And vintage again would probably be. 20s, 30s, yeah, 40s, that, 50s. Yeah, vintage. And then you hit retro about 70s, 80s, yeah. 90s. And then prehistoric would obviously be... You. Okay. Ooh. <laughs> that seemed to go really bad. And the music You've even stopped You've been dissing on perfectly. me all yeah. day. So sorry. Hey, well done. Thanks, Caitlin, for You're walking welcome, us through retro and vintage. Mm-hmm. And again, for your generation, please. Leave go something good. Find something. Do something. <laughs> different. I mean, different. Yeah. You are doing great mm-hmm. stuff. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Happy Thursday to you and uh, welcome back to the show. Holy, holy cow. We got a good one. Uh, Heather Johnson will be joining us in a bit to talk about how to create a united parenting front. You have got to be on the same page with your partner when it comes to parenting these crazy little kids. Heather will talk to us about getting on the same page. Also, we'll be visiting our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour and uh, check in with them. Plus, of course, a hero story of the day. And we are celebrating popcorn because today is Popcorn Day. It's the day you get ready to eat your popcorn. Ah, remember this sound, just the slow pop? This isn't even in a microwave. This this is what it sounds like at my house, because we use a uh, stir-crazy. Do you? Yes. So it's under a dome, mm-hmm. and then there's a lid on the dome that acts as a bowl, so when, you, when it's done, you flip it over. Just flip it over. But on top of the dome, there are holes... <gasps> Through which the butter flows and melts over the popcorn while it's popping. That sounds so you get crazy. Even, you get even distribution. It sounds stir crazy. They ought to be a sponsor. We've got too many good sponsors. <laughs> uh, that sounds really yummy. Today, Popcorn Day. Celebrate it, folks. Grab some popcorn. Get ready to watch the inauguration. We will also be going to Washington, D.C. with our Shikshamwe from Empty News. He's going to enlighten us about um, the inaugural events today. He thought the inauguration actually took place today. So he got there a little early. We're going to check in with him, see what he's doing. I, we still don't know yet if he actually is is informed that the inauguration is not taking place today. But I would think by now he would know that. But again, it is Shikshamway. So we'll get to all that fun, but first to Terry South with the headlines. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Thanks, Matt. Governor Nikki Haley seemed to break with President-elect Donald Trump on Russia during her Senate confirmation hearings Wednesday for the role of U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. Haley was straightforward in saying that Russia committed war crimes in its bombing of Aleppo, Syria, and also acknowledged that Crimea, the Ukrainian territory annexed by Russia, is part of Ukraine 
not Russia, despite what the yeah. Russia believes. Haley noted Russia will likely always be at the forefront of issues with the U.S. and said that she believes Russia is trying to show their muscle right now. I think we we will always have to be cautious, she said. I don't, I don't think we can trust them. Right. This is now three or four of his cabinet members that are... Well, she's not a cabinet member, but still but yeah. ambassador to the U.N. It's one of his first appointments appointment, he made, right. and she's uh, not on board, apparently. But yeah. apparently that's something he enjoys. And he likes differences right. of opinion. President Barack Obama Wednesday defended his decision to commute the bulk of Chelsea Manning's prison sentence. Speaking during his final press conference, the outgoing president addressed concerns that releasing Manning after six years in prison might send the message that leaking military and diplomatic documents will be met with light punishment. Vice President-elect uh, Mike Pence slammed the decision by President Obama to commute the sentence this week, saying to commute Private Manning's sentence was a mistake. Really? So Okay. Difference of opinion. Former Governor Rick Perry, he's uh, being interviewed, grilled, interrogated, however you want to look at what, how these uh, Beat up. confirmation hearings go. For uh, He's the pick for uh, the energy secretary, started a Senate confirmation hearings this morning. He did it by backtracking his past recommendation to abolish the department that he is now poised to lead. My statements made over five years ago about abolishing the Department of Energy do not reflect my current thinking, Perry said. In fact, after being briefed on so many of the functions of the Department of Energy, I regret recommending its elimination. Huh. As we talked earlier, there's a story out there that he was recently informed of the duties of the office that he was unaware of. He thought he was going to be the ambassador to the yeah. world for yeah. U.S. oil, and instead you're there's that, but you're also kind of managing our... Weapons stockpile. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Uh, also, his view on climate change possibly have changed. He says, I believe climate is changing. I believe some of it is naturally occurring, but some of it is caused by man-made activity. Oh, okay. He's been quoted before as not being so robust in Interesting. that Interesting. They're, they're being informed now. And finally. Yes. Remember Bernie Madoff? Oh, yeah. Ponzi scheme extraordinaire. Mm-hmm. He is sixty. He ran a sixty-five billion-dollar Ponzi scheme, one of the biggest thieves in history. But he's also the product of a financial system in which both clients and regulators look the other way from the cooked books to continue reaping the giant gains that he steadily delivered. Yes. Right? So he's in prison. Yeah. There's a, a soon-to-be. Uh, uh, it's called Ponzi Supernova, a new audible audio series built around extensive interviews with the now jailed Madoff. So they go in an interview and talk to him about oh, wow. how he did this. He's never talked about how he did this. So he's going to give the secrets. He's refused to talk about it. Well, one of the little nuggets that came out was, one, he's a star in prison because he stole more money than anyone in history. So thieves look at him as a hero. Yeah, sure. Right? Oh, boy. Also, at one point, he cornered the hot chocolate market in prison, buying up all every single package of Swiss Miss from the commissary and sold it for a profit on the prison yard. He monopolized hot chocolate in prison. <laughs> Look how much cocoa you want. How much cocoa you want. That's crazy. But I guess once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. That's a very important lesson, right? You can't get enough cocoa. That's what grandma used to say. I found that story funny. That is interesting. The rest of it's, you know, details if you're into financial, I guess, uh, detective work, I yeah. guess, to try to figure yeah. out how the Ponzi scheme worked. But I like the story about Swiss Miss, and he's he's still at it. <laughs> he's a businessman at heart. But I, I think mean, that's it's... his new nickname in prison. He's the Swiss Miss. He's the Swiss mister. It's, um, it's interesting because uh, it's usually cigarettes, right? That's yes. the currency, they say. But now it's cocoa. 
Maybe well, people are smoking less. Maybe they're more more healthy in prison. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and at least he's not and, making and, and his he's, own. He's in, I believe he's in a white collar situation in prison. Yeah. He's not in like you know a real prison. And apparently, he still has some money. Well. You know. Coco's doesn't come cheap. They didn't get all the money from the Ponzi scheme. Wow. There's some people's retirement accounts that were never reimbursed. Yeah, yeah. So, Hey, speaking of um, prisoners, apparently uh, a, a sheriff received a text that there was going to be a meth delivery. Oh, nice. Yeah, it was really a nice. A little heads up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it makes crime easier to yeah. solve. Authorities in Louisiana have arrested a man who they say accidentally texted a deputy to arrange a drug cell. Hmm. Hello, officer. Uh, Assumption Parish Sheriff Leland Falcon tells the local media the deputy received the misdirected text Friday from a 39-year-old Dwayne Paul Herbert of Pierre Part, arranging to deliver crystal methamphetamine. Man, it makes you wonder how the, this cop's phone number was in his... Yeah. I mean, it's kind of weird. Uh, the officer agreed, then mobilized the narcotics division. The sheriff says Herbert showed up carrying crystal meth and two firearms, and he's been arrested and is now facing charges. Hmm. But now, if he could just get in there and start selling some cocoa, yeah. maybe he'll be able to pay off his fines. Follow Bertie Madoff. <laughs> That's so sad. Um, any other headlines, Terry, news that we I need found, to be paying attention to? I found this to? story interesting. It's a, the, it's a study out of the University of California. Uh, shows that challenging someone's political beliefs activates the brain areas that are involved in personal identity and emotional response to threat. Oh, wow. So you challenge them and they feel threatened. It's like flight or fight. Fight or flight. So it says the brain's alarms go off. The person feels threatened on a deeply personal and emotional level and then shuts down and disregards any rational evidence that contradicts what he or she holds true. Ah. Indeed, such evidence may only increase people's conviction in their own beliefs. As the study authors note, the shutdown of dialogue poses a serious problem for our shared future. The inability to change another person's mind through evidence and argument, or to have one's own mind change in turn, stands out as a problem of great social importance. You're not going to change your mind if you feel like your life is in jeopardy. Right, your fight or flight isn't designed to make you wonder about the greater learnings of of maybe they are right. Help me understand. No, the fight or flight is no crush their head. You must win this. Now I wonder how how much of this is uh, connected to identity. Mm. You have political and yeah. em- emotional responses to threat. You have these these deeply personal emotional beliefs that are there. Yeah. And when someone challenges them, they're coming after your identity. They're coming after maybe it's something like a, it's a family thing. Right. It's You're a, a family threat. You you want bigger government. Yeah. You're a threat. You must die. You want to give food to the poor. Or what did? And then we attach politics and and other yeah. aspects of Anything. our lives together. It's all intertwined. Mm-hmm. And so if one thing changes, it all falls. Oh yeah. No. I believe, and then it just sets up for the perfect problem. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where we get to probably, you can see how that could, if that study proves true, then that's how we've gotten kind of to the situation where there is no agreement. It's right. either win or lose. But we need to be have. bigger than our little fight or flight brain. Yeah. Right. Which is why we talked in hour two of the show about mindfulness and getting to the higher power. Powerful. Also, you're on Instagram. Yes, I am. There's all kinds of wonderful Beautiful, incredibly engaging. Sure. You, uh, you're rolling your eyes like you don't like Instagram. There are times where I get on Instagram because I want to see who won the basketball game because they put up 
the score real quick, and it's an easy way to find it. Right. And the first picture every time is from you. Thank you. You are welcome. And I'm just like, ah. Oh, That's because you're not on enough. I see him at work. You don't have enough friends. You need there. more friends. I don't know. It's okay. just, it, it's a lot of you, Matt. Yeah, well. It's a lot of you. Where do you think the most Instagrammed places are in the world? Ah, most Instagrammed, I would say Hawaii. Let's see. Uh, no. Restaurants. No. These are actual locations. Hmm. Uh, the Eiffel Tower. That's number one. Grand Canyon. Grand Canyon is not on here. What? Yeah. What? Um, White House. Now, these are all based on how people label the photo, too. So yeah. Walmart. What? No. <laughs> That's not on there. I thought Walmart would be Number on one, there. Eiffel Tower. Two is Big Ben. Okay, yeah. Three is the Golden Gate Bridge. Ah. Four is the world's tallest building in Dubai. Yeah. It's called the, I don't know what it's oh, called. Oh, isn't that the Tom Cruise? Mm-hmm. Yes. The big tall yeah. building with Tom Cruise on it. I think it was in one of the Fast and Furious that drove some cars through it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Allegedly. Uh, n- n- the, what, Notre Dame, the Cathedral of uh, Notre Dame in yes. France. France? En France. France, right? Uh, but what is that? The Alamabra in Spain? The Spain's most enhancing, uh, it's a castle. See, that's Spain. neat, because if you went to Europe, you could hit most of these places. And Machu Picchu. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm guessing uh, the Grand Canyon is not on there because These are there the have top been... seven, so it oh, could be there. I think it, there have been too many deaths from people trying to take selfies and then falling in. Yeah, you don't want to... And then we warn you, watch out, right? Watch out. No need to die for a selfie. But not that that wouldn't be an incredible shot. <laughs> if you're able to recover it on yeah. the way down. Yeah, that's the bad part. <laughs> um, speaking of incredible shots, let's go to Washington, D.C. Uh, our, our Shik Shumway is there from Empty News. Shik is the our head reporter, and he's he was off a day. Shik tends to be off. I think it's just his pager – is off a day, but he um, he got there today thinking today was the day, the day of the big event, the big inauguration, and got there was a little surprised the crowds weren't were so sparse. So uh, we'll now connect with Schick, see uh, what he's learned and what he's doing. Schick, are you there? Schick, Schick Shumway in Washington D.C. Are you there, Schick? You know what he's doing? What's he doing? What's this? That's from Rogue One. He's watching Rogue One again. Shook's at a movie. So he must have figured it out. Oh, he's eating popcorn on popcorn day. Is that popcorn? Yep. He's eating popcorn. Shook? I mean, if you had the chance to go to D.C., wouldn't you go see Rogue One? Well, only if I missed the inauguration by a day. If, so he's I, got if, time. He, if he were there on the right day, he'd be too busy to go to a movie. You know, I've never been there, so I would probably want to visit the Capitol. Uh, all the other historic sites there. How do you miss an inauguration? It's on the same day. It's always on the 20th, yeah. right? Well, and it's on the news. Well, too. It's so on this, the interweb. And you think a guy that actually works in news would watch the news to know what's going on. Again, chic. <sighs> Maybe this is the closing credits, because I don't remember there being a credit scroll at the beginning of Rogue One. Did he not know that we would be doing a live take here a live shot with him yeah i mean how many times you've you've you know bum Never. dialed somebody before and no yeah but we didn't bum dial him we just dialed him and he said he'd be ready and now he's in a movie mm. okay get rid of him no literally i want you to get rid of him 
I need you. What are you? To, I need what you, are you to saying? talk to Schick, and we're done. Oh he's, come on! He's now zero for ten. Come zero on, for 10. zero for ten. I don't want to be rude here. He got you coverage that no other reporter is going to get. Yeah, in a Washington theater, Rogue One. Uh, the captain of the setup crew got him. Who no. else is going to cover that? They told him to get out of here because of security. How did he get in there? That's all he said. No insight. And then he got the the uh, background noise from the the west lawn outside the Capitol building. Yeah. Who else is going to bring you that? No one. C-SPAN, when they're waiting for another person to come talk. Hmm. So he ought to work for C-SPAN. That's all I'm saying. Just because he's a relative doesn't mean – and I don't want to – somebody needs to tell him that he, he, he can't come back unless he gets a phone. Gets rid of the pager. It's not working. Sorry, everybody. Sorry for doing that on air. I'm just – I've had it. You know, I'm trying to run a show here. He is going to be back on Tuesday because the Academy Award nominations are coming out, and apparently he's got a big interview. No, but are they really? What? Are they really coming out Tuesday? He Okay, he's got that date settled. You're so sure? Tuesday for sure, and he has a big interview scheduled, according oh, to him. Okay, whatever. Why don't you, whatever. Hey, so whatever. he figured out the audio problem. Now he he's got his schedule in sync with the actual event. We'll see. So what well, else? We'll do you, see, what yeah. else do you want? I just want a real news story once in a while. <sighs> Empty news, we call it. Tough stuff. We'll take a break. We'll come back. Joining us, Heather Johnson. We're talking about how to get on the same page with your spouse. Maybe I can get on the same page with my roving reporter. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. In studio with us is Heather Ann Johnson from FamilyVolley.com. Heather is a professor here at Brigham Young University and uh, helps families grow together, play together, and stay together. Today she's here to walk us through um, how we can get on the same page with our families, right? With our spouse, you mean? Parenting. Oh, we got to parent. You got to be on the same page. You got to be on the same page. Because how many times has one parent, like one parent makes the rule and then the other's supposed to enforce it and they don't enforce it? That's exactly right. Or even understand it so they know what they're enforcing. I didn't know there was a rule. (laughs) No one informed me. So, (laughs) and this is one of the most common things I see when I am working with families, they come in and this parenting comes up right away. She wants this and he wants this. And whenever I do this, she does. It's just nonstop. Uh, but the problem is when we're not on the same page as parents, we don't create a safe, stable culture in our home. And without that safety and stability, our kids just don't feel good oh, there. No. It creates a confusion that makes things feel very unstable. And un- instability always leads to lack of safety. Yeah. So this is much bigger than getting along with your spouse. This is recognizing that you want to create a very intentional culture in the place that your family lives. And that needs to be a safe space. And so, you don't and you don't want your children feeling like they need to choose. Right, right. Or playing you. 
Absolutely. Because they might play you too. Or, or they will for sure play you. Right, right. And so there's a lot of different reasons we struggle to agree in parenting, but there's some really common ones that we see all across the board. The first one is oftentimes we struggle to agree with a spouse because we have a need for control. Or maybe they do. Yeah. That can come from how we were raised. That can come from feelings we have inside. Uh, that can come from years of not feeling like your spouse has listened to or validated your opinions. But this need for control will stop us from being willing to understand and compromise with a spouse. Right. So it's it's time to kind of take a step back and say, why in the world can't we get on the same page with this? Is there a need for control? Maybe there is. So let's let's explore that. Another one is most of the time we misunderstand the other person's intentions when it comes to parenting. This happens first and foremost because most of us don't sit down with our spouses and talk about what our intentions are when it comes to parenting. Right. This is the same, as silly as this will sound, this is the same as uh, like rituals and Christmas and holidays and things. I always encourage my students to talk about their new Christmas rituals with their spouse when they get married in June or July. Right. Because Before at it's Christmas, it, it's too late. You're sunk by that point. And it's the same with parenting. You don't want to wait until the kid misses curfew by two hours to then decide how you're going to handle that. Right. So talk about it before and, and know that know your spouse's intentions. What do they want? What do they hope for for your children? What is it they want to do and emphasize as a parent? What means yeah. something to them? Don't you notice that sometimes they one parent doesn't like – they don't want to come down on the kid – so they actually use the other parent to be the enforcer. Right. But then when the person is an in, too big of an enforcer, they don't like it. It's exactly right. And so it's almost like we use each other's weaknesses and strengths against each other as parents. Right. And then our children, unfortunately, get hurt because right. of that. And so, again, remember, here we are as parents saying that our best interest and biggest concern is our children. And yet because we can't get along with our spouse when it comes to parenting, we're actually hurting our children more. And so it it really is important for us to be on the same page to work this through. Another reason we struggle with this is because something else is bothering us about our spouse. And so we take it out on them when it comes to parenting, Mm, right? There's a starvation somewhere. There's a frustration. You know, your husband said something three days ago. You're still holding on to it. You didn't discuss it or let it go and take a high road. And so you're still fuming. And so when it is time for you to support them, it's almost like a jab, like, well, you know, my feelings are still kind of hurt from Wednesday. So I don't know if I'm on board with you today. <laughs> that's right. You do it now. You do it. And, yeah. and we don't necessarily hone in that that's happening. Sometimes it's in hindsight. But this is happening a lot where we're holding on to something else. And as a result, we hold it against our, our spouses when they're trying to parent. And it makes your – so it, your marriage is struggling. So it makes your parenting struggle. That's exactly right. And mm. that's why, you know, we put so much emphasis on making a marriage strong so that your home is strong, so your family is strong because it's an extension of that. So some things we're going to stop doing, start doing, but mostly stop doing. It's time to stop undermining our spouse when it comes to parenting. We've got to stop that. Now, undermining happens in a couple of different ways. One of the ways we see undermining happen is when we step in to be a relief parent. This is when, as a spouse, we don't like uh, the consequences that our partner has enforced on our children. Right. And so as a result, for example, you know, maybe my husband says to our son, no computer, you know, for three days or whatever it might be. So when my husband's at work, I say, hey, listen, don't worry about it. I won't tell your dad. You can use it yeah. for an hour. It's okay. Ugh. Right. This is not okay. Right. right. Or he says, hey, no sugar. And I'm like, here, hey, here's a chocolate bar. Don't tell your dad. Yeah. You know, we, we offer that relief. And this is happening because we're really uncomfortable. We have our own discomfort and anxiety about the situation. Right. And so when we do that, we undermine. We got to stop. We gotta oh, stop that, that's horrible. Right? Yeah. Also, there's no trump cards in parenting. There is no room for either of us to come in and say, 
play uh, our trump yeah. card. No pun intended. Yeah. You know, that's the end all be all. What I say goes. That's not how parenting right. works. There are two of us. It's time to discuss that and work those things through. And one other thing that we see a lot when it comes to undermining is this behind the back conversation where we speak up against our spouse. Oftentimes, and women tend to do this as much, if not more, than a man will. Oftentimes, we'll hear a mom say something like, uh, you know, I know it hurts your feelings when your dad says that. It really hurts my feelings, too. Well, what's funny is we think we're doing a service to our kids, but really what we're doing is avoiding the fact that we need to be having a really hard conversation with our spouse. Right, right. And so we try to find ways around it so we don't ever have to deal with and face up to directly having those conversations with them. It really is just the inability in a relationship to to talk through right. the hard stuff. To communicate, yeah. right? And so as a result, we use our kids. We really kind of use them as little pawns. We just move them around to help protect mm-hmm. us and build a wall for us right. and defend us. And instead of going to our spouse and saying, hey, I'm uncomfortable with this or here are my feelings towards that. What do you think? Right. And starting to talk it through. So we have to stop undermining one another. We've so That's got to quit. We've yeah. got to quit doing that. And kids will naturally – turn you against each other. I mean, they they want to build a coalition. Absolutely. And they and, only need one of you. Right. That That's very true. And they're very smart. I think this is a huge issue for families, especially parents. We don't give our kids enough credit for how intelligent they really right. are. And that intelligence is a two-edged sword. They can use it for us and they can use it against us. Absolutely. And they will. And the thing is, they will become more against us or against one spouse, one parent, when they don't feel stable. So we're back to the need for there being a great deal of stability in a home. This is where we keep things really clear, too. When kids are getting in trouble or punished for things that they didn't realize were wrong in the first place, mm-hmm. this is confusing. You yeah. know, this is the kids sitting in their room on their bed for 12 minutes and they're like, well, I don't even know what I did to get here to my bed, but evidently I ticked mom I've off done somehow. Something, right. yeah. Anytime there's that confusion, it's really hard for them to buy in because their environment is so volatile. It's constantly unpredictable. Right, right. So we're trying to reestablish that and we have to do that by being on the same page as parents. And and two, you have to you have to communicate as effectively with each other and then you take that communication to the kid to make sure they know what happened. What's going on, right? Yeah. And this too and and this is a little bit of a side note, but when it comes to that clarity, helping our children know what the consequences and what the expectations are up front, again, long before they break the curfew, they should know what will happen to them. If they don't come home on time, yeah, not the night of, oh, you're two hours late, here's your consequence. It's, hey, just so you know, when you are 17 and you are two hours late, these will be the consequences. This is going to happen. Right. So they know what to expect. What if, what if it's something that is, is unanticipated? Like it's, it's not coming home. We know you shouldn't be home two hours late, but it's me having to tell you four times sure, to sure. do something. So, and you're then in this, the fourth time, they're still surprised. Like, what? <laughs> what, mom? Well, if you know that you, well, they know at they that know. point. You've said, hey, pick that up. Absolutely. If you've adequately prepared them, that's one thing. Yeah. And now you're dealing with even that underlying issue where obviously there's a need that is not being met for them that we need to address. Right. That lack of, you know, or that starvation is why they're not willing to pick it up. Yeah. It's not is why they're not willing to to clue into what's happening mm-hmm. there. So we want to get down to that. But if there is something that happens and this is one of the tips we'll talk about if there is something that happens and on the spot like curfew, you have a disagreement. There is nothing wrong with saying, "Hey, listen, recognize there's trouble. Recognize this is not okay in our home and you're going to have to give your dad and I a couple minutes or an hour or so to decide how we need to move forward with this situation." 
so that instead of right in front of them, you just butting heads. He has grounded for two weeks. I don't believe in grounding and back and forth. You take yourself out of the situation, making it clear you'll be back. You have that discussion, whether it takes two minutes, two hours or two days, and you return to your child as a team. And that's perfectly all right. It's okay to delay a consequence while you work it out. Much better than having that fight where your kids very much pick up on the fact that that they can play one of you to get exactly what they want. Mommy and and Daddy need to go decide if we're going to spank you. Right. Give us five minutes. (laughs) What? Let's talk about that. Yeah, that's really good. Sit here and stress until we return. But we will be back. We'll be back. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Good stuff. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Heather Ann Johnson from um, FamilyVolley.com. And also, you got to go check out her book family fun fridays soon to be releasing family fun uh saturdays through thursdays lots of books coming stick with us helping you see and be the good in the world this is the matt townsend show Welcome back, friends. Joining us is Heather Johnson from FamilyVolley.com. She is here to teach us how to get on the same page as parents so that we don't, we're not a divided front. We're a united front, and we can be a united parenting team as well. It's better for everyone. Uh, Heather, thanks for being with us. Sure. It's great to be here. What, uh, what other advice? So we, we, we basically want to um, – we, we want to get on the same page. Right. We want to not undermine our partner, not – not sneakily be on dad's side. We want to talk. We want to be a unified front. Absolutely. And there's lots of other things we can do or not do that will help with this. We already mentioned the need to work out ground rules beforehand. And like you mentioned, there will be things that come up that we didn't anticipate. There will be lots of things, though, that we can anticipate. So what we want to do is we want to make sure we have positive and, and in a sense, negative consequences that we both agree on. This is where you talk about, like you mentioned, spanking, right? It doesn't matter what happens. If this is a mode your spouse thinks is okay and you don't, you should have this conversation right now, right. long before somebody needs a spanking. Right. And so you want to make sure you know. And it's the same with positive. You know, we always think negative when it comes to parenting. But there's lots of positive consequences that your spouse might not be on board with. Like maybe every time, you know, our kids do something good, I think they need ice cream. Yeah. And my husband's like, well, wait a second. One, it's not good because of the sugar. And I don't know. Two, it costs a lot of money. We don't need ice cream every day of the week just because they went to school. My kids say, Dad, what will you do if I get a 4-0? Right. And I'll be like, I'll hug you. Yeah, and you can still live here. But apparently they're getting an idea somewhere that we're going to (laughs) To incentivize them. Right. And so the positive needs to be talked about just like the negative, right? If if I think every time an A comes home, somebody gets a new outfit, I can guarantee you right now my husband would not be on board with that. Right, right. And so these are conversations we need to have positive and negative. Mm -hmm. It gets us on the same page. And these ground rules can be set long before they happen. Now, then the question is, like you mentioned, what if it's an unexpected situation? We didn't anticipate that a daughter or son would do the following. Mm -hmm. This is where the discussion has to be basic. This is where you and your spouse sit down and decide what is the value system we want our children to learn and live by. Because all the things that they do or don't do will fall under that value system. So when you know how you want to handle the values, it won't matter what the 
incident is because you go back to the value system mm-hmm. you subscribe to. And you've already decided what the consequences, positive and negative, for upholding or defeating those values will look like. Right. So don't get so caught up in, well, but we can't anticipate every single last day and, and misstep. It doesn't matter. We can we can know that honesty is very valuable in our home. If anything impedes those boundaries of honesty, there will be a consequence. Mm-hmm. We can know that ahead of time. Yeah. So those are the conversations you have to That's have. That's great. Now, other things, both parents have to be enforcers. Oftentimes, and it comes, you know, old school, old fashioned, where kind of the dad was always the one to enforce all the rules. This isn't okay. We've got to both be on board to enforce the good and the bad. They have to see it from mm. both of us. You can't, you can't always have one be the bad guy. It's exactly right. And like you said, it's really important that they see it from both or they'll play us mm-hmm. just how they want. And they'll play us for 10 years before we even figure out or pick up on the fact so that true. they've been playing us for 10 years right. because we're busy and we're stressed and we don't always tune into it. So we both want to enforce. The other thing is oftentimes we make this mistake, and I know this is one my husband and I tease each other about. That need you have to jump in when your spouse is doing any sort of parenting, right? Right. And so you hear the conversation a few steps away. You hear your husband talking to your son about his grades or, you know, your daughter about what's going on at school. And it's just, he should say this. Is he going to say this? Well, I should say this. Well, if no one's going to say this, I, and we yeah. have this need to, to jump in and say something or share our own personal experience, that jumping in hurts what's going on between our spouse and our child. Now, is there room for that eventually once they've concluded and then you want to, hey, would it be all right if I shared an experience that came to mind while the two of you were talking? By all means. Yeah. But jumping in right then mid-sentence, not cool. And your spouse will give you that look that makes it very <laughs> clear. out of It's this. exactly right. right. Like I'm just – I know the first time I kind of made the mistake, my husband afterwards said, you know, I was like just getting where I felt we were making some – you know, getting some traction and I appreciate it. But – and I knew better. Mm-hmm. Even knowing better, right. I still have a tendency to want to oh, jump well, in. Because you right? want to protect your little – Chicks. Well, yeah, and even not protect. Sometimes I know they're in the wrong and I want to say, look, I had this experience. I know yeah. what it feels like. Don't mess up like this again. It will hurt you. Right, right. Right? Personal experiences. So we're not going to jump in. The next thing we're going to make sure we do is we must disagree with respect. Now, here's what happens. Oftentimes when it comes to disagreeing, which is okay, we don't recognize that the respect has to trump the fact that we don't agree. Mm-hmm. Respect governs all things. And so our children need to see too, oh, it's okay to disagree, but you can disagree with respect. Right. We're modeling for them not just how they will parent and be in marriage. We're modeling for them what they feel is is okay in their own relationships at work, at school, with neighbors. They need to see disagreement with respect is absolutely all right yeah. and have that modeled for them. Totally so true. we're going to make sure that we do that. A couple other things with that one. Oftentimes we think that as parents we have to agree. We don't have to agree. We just have to understand. And so when it comes to parenting and being on the same page, we should be seeking true understanding, not true agreement. Mm -hmm. What will happen is when we come to understand where our spouse is coming from with parenting, that then will allow us to know what to do that's right so we can come together on the same page. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And you see this in marriage. You see it in all relationships. Mm -hmm. But it's really seeking the understanding. So my job shouldn't be, well, man, I don't agree with you. How are we going to come to a place where we agree? It should be. Where is he going with this? Why does my husband feel this way? How can I understand his point? And where do we agree? Right. And what is, you know, already our our same percentage here? We've seen this like we were just joking in the break. My husband and I come from 
very, very different families when it comes to communicating, when it comes to everything. And so oftentimes when we first got married, I, I was focused on the agreement. Well, you you want to do this with them? You think they should ride dirt bikes? Right. I don't. There is no like half dirt bike. There is a dirt bike <laughs> or not a dirt bike. There's death or there, life. It's a, and that's how it was in my life. <laughs> right. So I was so focused on finding a way to agree that there was no possible way to find a solution because you can't have – an, an agreement, agreement with right. something with parenting about a dirt bike. It wasn't until I sought true understanding for why my husband loved them, wanted to introduce them to our family, wanted it to be a part of our family culture that I could take a step back and go, oh, there are things now through understanding that I can agree That's with. That's good. Yeah. And so it's really important we seek the understanding, not necessarily the agreement. The That's agreement cool. will come. So that's something really important there. Give us one more. What's one more thing we have to make sure is there for unified parenting? Sure. When you disagree, go back to who feels most strongly on the issue and allow them to take the lead. Uh, Yeah, defer. Right. Because sometimes – not sometimes. Oftentimes we get in that standstill again where because of our own ego, we're having a hard time understanding. Mm -hmm. We're having a hard time finding where we can agree. And so this is where you say, you know what? You have a much stronger opinion about sleepovers than I do. I have an opinion, but it's clear that your opinion is very strong. So as a result – why don't you handle this, That's right? Good. And you let them go ahead and take the lead on that. Now, what you hope is that the respect is returned. There are clearly things where I'm going to have a stronger opinion. And I would hope that in turn my husband would say, hey, you know what? I, I can see this is a big deal to you. Let's do it mm. the way you feel is right. Let's support that. And we have to relay that message to our kids. It's That's where good. we say your mom feels very strongly about this. I think it's important we follow what she's saying. Boy, and if I could explain why, because I've understood you – powerful. Now we're in a really good place, not just as a parent, but really in a marriage. Oh, yeah. Heather Ann Johnson's her name. Thanks, Heather. Appreciate it. Everybody, go check out the website, familyvolley.com. You can get all of her latest and greatest uh, blogs, podcasts, everything she does. Her name's Heather Johnson. You don't want to miss her. We'll be back, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Up next, our good buddies from BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us. Next spring on BYU Radio, what do you get when you take America's greatest pastime and add one of the most feared creatures on the planet? You get Gator Ball. Gator Ball is the same as baseball with just a few minor adjustments. Two teams of nine players come onto the field wearing uniforms that have been dipped overnight in chicken and fish chum. As the game commences, players need to make sure they're at the top of their game or else. If you hate long, drawn-out games, you'll love Gator Ball. Anytime a pitcher takes too long to throw the ball, or a coach calls for a review, and anytime there's a pickoff attempt, watch out for them Gators. Oh, man, these kids are taking way too long, man. Oh, look at that. They're going to send out the Gators. You better watch out for that. You may try to steal third, but if you don't make it, a Gator's going to steal your foot. Somebody shoot him! Man, that gator, he locked his foot. He got him out of here, man. And if the gator gets you, the inning's over. Other exciting plays include the sacrifice fly, where the team offers up their injured or low-performing players. The double play, where the gators are given a chance to bite two players in one play. Or the walk-off home run 
where any player who hits a home run is allowed to walk off the field and watch the remainder of the game from the safety of the dugout. Oh, man, that ball is gone. Oh, he's gone. Oh, man, he ain't going to be no Gator Fool Night Man. Yeah. Gator Ball. A game you can really sink your teeth into. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, let's shoot it down to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what will be coming up on their show at the top of the hour. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Matthew. I thought the decadence commercial was fantastic <laughs> leading into this part of the show yesterday. But yes. Gator Ball Gator is all. Gator Ball, boy. <laughs> Don't you no, love Gator funny. Ball? Don't you think Gator Ball would be a hit right now at this time of the year when football's gone, basketball's just kind of, you know, making its way now? I mean, it's the perfect season for Gator Ball. Yes, if we were living in uh, the Roman Empire when uh, (laughs) the Aztecs guys were trying to kill each other in mortal basketball, (laughs) that that sounds amazing for those people, right? And if you could chum the uniforms, you know, so that they have that smell. That draws that was, the Gators out. Yeah, that's called a must-win mm-hmm. kind of game. <laughs> that's a game. Yeah, yeah. Is this a must-win? Well, yeah. yeah, I'm going to die if I don't. They were like, yeah, World War II was must-win. This is seriously this is not must a must-win. Win. Hey, okay, question for you, gentlemen. Uh, big deal being made about Westbrook, Durant. They met last night. The feud since Durant left. Yeah. Is it? Is it that big of a deal? I mean, these guys are pros, and honestly— are they really rivals? I think there are hard feelings between the two because of how things went down. But I, this is a, they're pros. Come on. Yeah, I don't well, know. Well, they're professional they're, basketball there's players. There's an added measure of competition, right? Because yeah. it's like, oh, I want to beat that guy. But I don't think that there is like straight up animosity. No. I mean, you would think not, but apparently uh, they don't talk. They don't yeah. talk, apparently. Yeah. They're not professionals emotionally, maybe. No, no. You know what I mean? I I don't know. No, I think you're right. I see more likely the animosity coming from Russell Westbrook than I do from Kevin Durant, just because of their persona. Kevin's in a better situation. Yeah. Right. Well, but Westbrook's probably having a better year, isn't he? Isn't Westbrook personally doing better? Because Kevin Durant left. Because there's more shots to go around. Triple-double king now or whatever. Yes, but... The Thunder are going to be watching the Warriors play in June. Yeah, that's hard. You know, that's ultimately where you want to be. It's kind of sad. Uh, you know, brothers. Russell's getting paid. That's true. They're professionals. He can wipe his tears with his Benjamins. That he can. <laughs> oh, how would that be? Okay, so here's the question about rivalries then. Um, BYU, University of Utah, always kind of a rivalry. But who is really the biggest rival to BYU right now? Right now? And yeah. what, it depends on the sport. In, in basketball. Gonzaga, St. Mary's, those two. St. Mary's probably. St. Mary's has the uh, ill will. <laughs> Do they? Yeah, we, we've discussed this the last couple of years. I used to think it was Gonzaga, and then I realized that Gonzaga is the king of the league, yeah. and BYU rents from the <laughs> landlord Gonzaga. Right? Yeah, okay. And, and so it's it's tough. So, the, But St. Mary's, there have been more... There's been more ill will. Yeah. Expenses, right? There have been more Della Vadova. Mm. Uh, Crazy th- moments. Like throwing mouthpieces and elbowing Eric Mika in the face. And Interesting. The Della Dagger. Gonzaga, there's not been this no. angst. In fact, after the West Coast Conference semifinal last year against the Zags, Kyle Wilcher of Gonzaga said, 
I wouldn't describe it as a rivalry because there's not a lot of animosity. Yeah, we like those guys. We respect them. We think they're a good team. Yeah. yeah. And unfortunately, Gonzaga kind of owns the yeah. league, and so BYU is in a position where they're saying, yes, yes, sir. And they're fighting, and they're fighting for a second. Like, yeah. You're on our level. You're a bunch of punks. <laughs> and now there's some fun, right? Oh, this Gonzaga, is fun. It's like, no, you're going to win the league. Like, it's all good. Oh, brother. Even though BYU's won in Spokane the last two years. Oh, but yeah. BYU hasn't won in Vegas. That will be the ultimate turn of momentum tide if BYU can beat Gonzaga in Vegas. Yes. I, I personally think Vegas is hard for BYU. It is. They it haven't just, won the league in 16 years. It's Babylon. Vegas. The tournament. Yeah. Which you is know, crazy. You know who was the coach when BYU won the last conference tournament? Um, what's his name? Whose son played on the team? Short gentleman. Nope. Okay. Came after that. Then Cleveland. It was yeah. The, it was, yep, that's President right. Coach President Cleveland. Coach Steve Cleveland. What was the name of the other coach? coach? Ra- I was Roger Reed. Roger Reed, that. that's exactly right. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, who's short? Who's son? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, do you remember? <laughs> yeah, that guy. And I don't know if he was short. He was just shorter I than all of us. I was short. I did, just short, <laughs> short in comparison to his other. True, though. That's, yeah. 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 Okay. okay. So Steve no, Cleveland. So they, boy, it's been a long time. 2001. Wow. Yeah, yeah let's get that monkey. I was monkey. in high school. Mm. Oh, geez. Don't bring that up. <laughs> I'm so old. I'm so old. You're, we were, you're not old. Earlier we were talking about retro and vintage clothing, and everything that they were mentioning is stuff I actually wore in high school. <laughs> it's pathetic. pathetic. Hey, do, you remember, do you remember Jerbo jeans, oh, man? That was when I got off my LDS mission, I came home, and my wife's like, you need a pair of Jerbo jeans. And I'm like, I don't like gerbils <laughs> in my jeans. And she said, we went and got me a pair, and uh, I looked hot. Marte Francois Gerbeau. Mm, Gerbeau. They were <gasps> they were the sixty dollar oh, jeans in the early nineties. They were right? hot, That's so expensive, and they made me look a lot. They just made me look ripped. I don't know. Those why. tapered legs mm-hmm. were fantastic. Mm-hmm. So you know, you know. <laughs> hey, okay, um, tell me about your show. What's on your show other than Gerbeau jeans? Oh man, well it's hard to. Uh, Top anything to top like that. that. Really <laughs> but we do have the topic of hope springs eternal for BYU basketball. Wow. Rebellions are built on hope, man. Good, good. <laughs> there is a large understanding, or at least we think so, on social media and, and can, almost a consensus that because BYU lost to San Diego and they lost to Utah Valley, they're not going to make the NCAA tournament. Mm-hmm. It's just that super blue goggle we thing. We do this every year! <laughs> Settle down. But, but there are yet opportunities for BYU to jump right back into the conversation. In fact, one win over a certain team would put BYU right back on the fringe <gasps> of that bubble conversation. Whoa. So you'll so talk about that. So what goes into that? Why, is, there really, is there really an endless hope for BYU to make the NCAA tournament this year? Mm. It starts with Pepperdine tonight. Okay. started with a whisper. As neon trees once. Whisper. Yeah. Okay. So we've got that going for That's us. That's good. That's good. And we've got Holy Yoli Manchilds on the show today. <laughs> and President Coach Steve Cleveland. There you go. Mentioned. And Holy are going cow. for two picks for tonight. Yeah. We're, we're going to go head to head, which means uh, there's going to be a thing and Spencer or I will get it. Okay. Yes. As okay. opposed to Spencer's just going to pick two things. I'm going to pick two things. Right? Okay. So it, it's like. It's like when the Mariners are up three games uh, in the AL West on the Angels, but they go head to head with the Angels. Yeah, they can, yeah. They can, you know, the they Angels control, can make up they ground. They control their own destiny. Yeah, as opposed to playing other teams. Oh, Correct. sure. You see the difference. Okay. That's a great show. Yeah. yeah. Locked and loaded. Okay, gentlemen, go get stretched out, go get ready, knock them dead.
All right. Peace out, brother. Gator ball. Gator ball. Yeah. They're locked and loaded. Yeah, they've got to get they've got to get going. We took them long. And uh, Gator Ball fans, again, we're doing everything we can to get a team here at Brigham Young University, Gator Ball. I think it is something you'd have to do in the summer as I think about it because the Gators probably wouldn't love running around in the, in the freezing. I think they, uh, tried, they tried out a draft here, but the draft uh, keeps diminishing. Yeah, it's weird. It's hard to keep the draft going because the Gators – I mean a lot of these Gators are really good. So you just keep losing draftees. And there's a Gator draft too. <laughs> they don't just pick any Gators. No, no, no. You got to get the right – you got to get the right kind of Gator. Hey, um, as you know, we always like to end the show with a hero story. And what better story than to be a young boy who continues to sell his baseball cards to help a friend with cancer? Out of uh, Springfield, Massachusetts, WWLP.com, one Springfield kid is making a difference by selling baseball cards. Brady Call has been selling his prized baseball cards to help raise money for kids with cancer. He told 22 News, I just had a lot of baseball cards and I wanted to help them out. Uh, Jim Call, Brady's grandfather, said, if you have an opportunity to make a difference in this world, you don't, uh, you, you, you don't waste your time. We uh, that you don't waste your time not helping out. That's the family motto. He says the motto helped uh, Kali create a charity organization called Cards for a Cause, and now they're selling everything they can: sports memorabilia, cards, anything with significant value. And now people from the neighborhood and the community are also donating their cards to this charity as well. They're raising money for friends of Kali and others that are uh, suffering or battling cancer. Peter Manzi was diagnosed with leukemia back in December of 2015, and Landon Palatino was diagnosed with a glioblastoma, brain cancer, and both of them have been served by this wonderful cause and this wonderful family. So, so far the kid has raised $13,000 since February of last year. Just amazing. A young kid making a difference where he can. That's all heroes do, right? You don't have to stop a fire. You don't have to change the world, but you just do what you can where you can. That's the show, my friends. We'll be back tomorrow to do what we can to improve your lives. Until then, let's make it a great one and let's look after each other. We'll talk again tomorrow.